Welcome to episode 121 of Creativity Talking with special guest Ted Haler. A uh, older brother for V after his brother is no more. Ted stepped in and uh, did Mr. V correct. So, Mr. V. Thank you, Biff. That was very nice. Yes, I have two of the people who helped me through um, the worst time in my life. My roommate from college, Jason, who's a really, really good friend of mine, and another good friend of mine, Ted Haler. You could say both of these people are brothers of mine. Jason, how are you? I'm fantastic, brother. How you doing? Good, good, good. And Jason, this is uh, Mr. Ted Haler. Ted, nice to, nice to meet you. And nice to meet you, too. Now, Ted, you have a very interesting story. Um, do you want to start off on uh, how it came to be that you went to Vietnam? Um, yeah, I guess so. Uh, that part of the story is just uh, following family tradition. I had military all through my family. The, uh, I had joined the Navy, and uh, they came in. I was in gunnery school, and a couple of officers came in and said, hey, we've got this hotshot new division over in Vietnam. These boats are kind of like John Wayne and the PT boats, but they're smaller. They're jet boats. We're looking for volunteers. And uh, my two buddies and I looked at each other and we raised our hands not even thinking about it. And uh, that one proceeded on into some months of training. And uh, there was also the training also uh, was boat handling, gunnery, hand grenades, all that kind of the weaponry stuff. And then uh, also went through SEER uh, training, like the SEAL team, you know, go through that. That oh, was wow. pretty rugged. Yeah. And how long did the training last before you uh, were in theater? I'm sorry, say again. How long did was that training before they sent you in theater? Oh, several months. I don't recall off the top of my head. Uh, we, we topped it off with jungle survival uh, school over in the Philippines. We went up in the hills with uh, the Negritos, the leftover Negritos from World War II. And wow. these were Filipinos that fought off the Japanese with rakes, hoes, machetes, and, you know, their, their hands. Yeah. They're just some really rugged guys. Yeah. And we went up, we went up in the bush with them for a week. And we were allowed knives and no matches. You could take cigarettes, but you had to figure out how to light them without a match. (laughs) (laughs) But I'll tell you what, you give me a piece of bamboo and a knife, and I can get you a fire going in less than a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Well, absolutely. You know, my my Uncle Bob served in... uh, World War II, and he was stationed in the Philippines. He joined the buddy program with my other uncle. And uh, uh-huh. so my Uncle Bob is really unassuming, kind of like a Forrest Gump in, not like, um, he wasn't daft. He was just a nice, humble gentleman. Um, right. not, not very loud, very courteous. You know, he didn't get married so he could take care of his mom who was ill, never had kids, you know, this kind of thing. And, uh, you know, he, you know, he rode... You know, right after or pre World War Two, and then afterwards, he also he used to have an Indian with the stick shift on the side of the tank. Nice. And oh, yeah, uh, sure. yeah, so uh, so he's in the Philippines, and so he's stationed out there, and he 
he needs a cigarette. So he he's on watch, and he kind of walks off to have a cigarette. Now, they had had problems with people stealing fuel, and they were stealing fuel in the 55-gallon um, barrels. You know, uh-huh. hundreds of them just dissing up, and they couldn't figure it out. So he's out there smoking, and he walks into this clearing, and there's all the fuel fenced with the truck that was stolen, and they're loading... <laughs> They're loading the thing, and he's just got a side on. He's having a cigarette. He shouldn't have been there. So he yeah. tries to leave because he doesn't want to get involved. You know, like so he he was just going to report it. Well, they saw him, and then they all surrendered to him. So he's not. So he's on break. He's taking a cigarette. He's not supposed to be doing that. He rolls back in the camp on the side with his sidearm on his, you know, in his hand, pointing up, you know, and. uh with a, all the fuel, not all the fuel, but a truck full of fuel, the truck, and then he busted the ring by simply having a cigarette. <laughs> but something tells me that happens more frequently than we know of, you know. Yeah. But um, so, go ahead, Ted. Oh, okay. Uh, so anyway, we're up there for a week, and... Uh, these guys were just amazing. I was I was a pretty good knife thrower. These guys, if they had a blade on it, they could throw it, and I don't care how good you were, they were better. Yeah. And we ate, ate very well. We had um, stewed monkey, we had fish, all kinds of uh, natural stuff, you know, berries and leaves and stuff. And uh, it was quite an adventure. And these, these small people, I mean, you know, the Filipinos are smaller than us, us guys. Yeah. And they were just tenacious. So, anyway, I finished up that, then they sent me into to Vietnam and assigned me to a, a, a river section. And uh, my old river section number was 533. I was what's called a plank owner. In other words, one of the original crew members on a PBR number 160. And... That was my boat throughout the year that I was there. Now, is this? Did you get injured at, in this when you were on the boat? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got wounded three different times. So you're a three-time Purple Heart. Uh, two, because one of them was a CIA mission that didn't exist, so I didn't get wounded. Oh, right. never happened, right? Right, and you never had to recoup from that shit either, huh? <laughs> no, huh? <laughs> I, I went to the hospital for 30 days just for, you know... Just to hang? Uh, recreation. Right. R&R, yeah. right? So, yeah. so how long were you in Vietnam before um, you were sent home, or did you go back? Uh, well, actually, I was in, in Vietnam for a year, but... About nine months into my tour, I volunteered for another tour. But uh, what happened was uh, the Red Cross notified me that my mom was in really bad shape. She had gone in for, I guess, a regular surgery, but it went into five complicating ones. And uh, so they more or less called me home. And the Navy didn't like it a whole lot, but also back then, when you were wounded twice, you're supposed to go home. Uh-huh. But 
the guys in my outfit, they, they didn't get to go home because the, uh, we, were, oh, we were special ops guys, and the Navy had spent a lot of money training us. Right. So the two, two wounds didn't apply to us. Yeah, a lot, a lot of people who've never had even family members in the military, they just don't understand that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, like you hear, you know, like when I was a kid, I'm the only male in three generations who didn't serve in the military. I figured they got everyone else. And uh, and that enabled me not to go in and be an artist and carefree and a smart ass and all that stuff. But, you know, you listen to their stories, and there's just some stuff that's, you know, you know, because today we want to talk about PTSD and that, you know, George Carlin does a whole thing on how it progressed. You know, first you were shell-shocked, and then you were, you know, then they changed again, and then it changed to PTSD. So, you know, um, you know, right now, especially with the with the uh, COOF going on is what I call the uh, pandemic, um, you know, a lot of people have some... You know, that's triggering some PTSD stuff pretty hard as well as suicidal thoughts, suicides through the roof, you know, mental health, maybe hopefully finally gets some type of acknowledgement that there's a huge issue that needs to be worked on and everyone kind of needs to work together to figure this out. A lot of people do not know or understand what PTSD is. It's just another, you know, OCD, ADHD, da 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 da, you know, PTSD, just another thing. Right. Can you explain uh, that, what that actually is to feel it? Uh, no, I don't think I can explain how it is to feel it. It would be like me trying to explain a woman's point of view on how it is to give birth. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's a good analogy. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's very personal. And you know, it, it's, I didn't even know I had it for the longest time. Uh, but my personality had been altered and I recognized just a little bit of it, but, you know, it, it didn't seem that big a deal. Mm-hmm. Um, let me go back to, um, uh, shell shock. Yes. And the World War II vets, why we didn't see more PTSD cases after the war and after the troops came home. There's one principal reason, and that was that they were on troop ships, and they'd be, you know, stuffed like sardines in a can coming home from the, the front, wherever yeah. that front was. And they'd be sitting around, and they didn't know it. But what they were doing was having group therapy. Okay. And they'd be talking about their experiences, and then somebody was, oh, you felt like that? Oh, that made you feel that way? Or you know, that was their experience? And they felt like they were not alone. Right. And they talked themselves through it, not doing, knowing that that's what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and then Vietnam, though, I went from the battlefield to Saigon, checked out, and within a couple of days, I'm on a, 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 um, a jet going back to the States, and then 20, I think it was 24 hours from Vietnam to um, McGuire Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. And then out on the street all by myself. That's a shock. Right. And back then, there, there never was any downtime there. Yeah. What, what's that? I said, yeah, there was never any downtime, right? It was just, you know, from one extreme to another, I guess, basically, right? Yeah. 
Trophy, McGuire Air Force Base, they dumped us off. There weren't even any signs where the bus stops were or anything else. And uh, so I got on the bus into Philadelphia so I could get to the uh, airport so I could fly home. And on the street of Philadelphia, at that point in time, racial tension was really high. And there I am in a white hat and a uniform, just back from Vietnam, and through all the stuff that you go through in war. And I'm on the street now, waiting for a bus, and scared to death. Yeah. Because when you're in, you know, the, the bush, and you're, you're, all your senses are tweaked. You're just so hyper alert all the time, because that's how you stay alive. Right. And so, out on the street, with all my senses going wacky, and I was scared, because there I am, I could feel all the tension. I didn't know what it was from. Right. But it wasn't good. It scared the shit out of me. Yeah. 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 So then, anyway, I go on with life. And, you know, like everybody else, you go, oh, you get married, blah, blah, blah. And uh, tried a bunch of different careers. And just, I just didn't fit in anymore. Yeah. And when I came back, people would say, oh, tell us about Vietnam. And I, like a dummy, like an innocent dummy, I start to talk and tell them. But, you know, a few sentences or paragraph into me telling my story, they turn their backs and walk away one by one. They really mm -hmm. didn't want to know. Yeah. Yeah. And so then I just, I clammed up for years. Wouldn't talk about it. Yeah. And, you know, I, my dad was a, a Vietnam vet as well. And, you know, I, when I was a kid, um, you know, anytime I would try to bring it up, I mean, he, he, I was thinking about that the other day. Um, I, he really never would tell any stories or, or go into too much detail about anything, you know? Um, yeah. you know, when you're a kid you know, at a certain age, you know, you're kind of interested, you'd like to hear something and he just, you know, he, you know, he might just skim the top of something, but he wouldn't really, you know, um, mm -hmm. wouldn't tell me too much about it, you know, and, uh, might have something to do with it. I don't know. You know? Yeah. Well, then I go on and get married, divorced a couple of times. <laughs> and, uh, Can't just have one. No. Hey, I didn't know the punchline, you know? <laughs> um, well, anyway, I'm with this, the love of my life. We wound up being together about 12 years before we split. And how'd that? Go? And where did you meet her, Ted? Up. Oh, hold on, I'm gonna have to pause a second here. Did we lose him? I think so. Yeah, you said uh, you were with the love of your life for twelve years. Right. And one afternoon, um, she said, uh, "Let's go for a walk in the park." We go sit in the park, and she said, Ted, you've got to get help, or I have to leave. What? What is it now? I need to get help. I'm going to leave. Is it help about what? She said, Vietnam. Wow. She said, why? What? She said, you talk about it all the time. And this is when we go through the first Gulf War and everything. Yeah. And 
I was ready to, I almost threw an ashtray through the TV set one day. You know, it was just, the news was just overwhelming. Yeah, so I, I didn't want to lose her. Right. And uh, so I went into one of the vet centers and got off my motorcycle and I go to put my hand on the doorknob and it said, uh, no drugs, no alcohol, no guns. And my hand just started to shake, and I could almost not open the door. And I went inside, and uh, a couple of ladies were there as receptionists, and they had been around the block with this stuff. And they, they came over gently, hi, how you doing? Let's sit you down. Would you like a cup of coffee while you're waiting? And they just kind of comforted me. And then I went and saw this counselor and uh, started talking. And it was the first time that something clicked for me. And I was telling him about either an event or feelings or something. And he said, oh, yeah, we don't feel like that. He was a better in himself. Yeah. And uh, we don't feel like that. And what? I feel like that. And so all of a sudden, I wasn't alone. And went back several times, but then he unfortunately got burned out. He was in the Battle of Wayne, which was really horrendous if you know anything about the war. And uh, he got burned out, and at one point he said to me, Yeah, he said, I think it's your childhood. And I looked at him and I said, What in the fuck are you talking about? I don't recall killing anybody when I was a kid. I don't recall anybody dying in my arms as a kid. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I walked away because I knew there was no help. And so our relationship went on uh, for a few more years. And then uh, finally, she lost hope that things would change and we parted ways. Uh, I still adore her to this day, that's like 20 something years ago. Uh, fine, fine woman, the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, so my, my life goes on, and I decided to try to get some help, so I go to the VA, and they put me in a group session, and I had already done a lot of reading and you know, self examination and so on and so on. And these poor guys, they hadn't left the battlefield, they were still there. Mm-hmm. And I was out of place in the class. I could have, I could have been a monitor or you know something. Uh, so I quit that. Well, time goes on, and you know, I get uh, go through a couple of doctors, and finally I land one doctor. She stopped me from drugs, stopped me from smoking, stopped me from drinking, uh, and then she got me to. Uh, uh, to get counselor, she sent me over to the emergency room, a psychiatrist. And so, for some reason, the psychiatrist uh, took kindly to me and worked with me. And we tried some of the the, uh, the drugs that are out there for some PTSD, different uh, emotional, mental disorders. And it would work for weeks, and then all of a sudden I'd be in worse shape than before I started taking them. And we went through, I don't know how many different prescriptions, and none of them 
really boiled oil for me. So I had to get that. And I went in to see her one day, and he said, boy, you look pretty good. And I go, oh, yeah, they just raised my VA benefit to 50%. <laughs> Just a couple, yeah. huh? Yeah, that's not a surprise. I've heard many cases very similar, you know. Right. Yeah. You know, just how look, I mean, you know, for, you know, one example, just look how long it took for them to recognize Agent Orange. And then Gulf War Syndrome and, you know, that whole thing. But, uh, Uh, you know. I had cancer from Agent Orange. Did you? Oh, wow. Holy cow. Yeah. I participated in an age-long study that the state of New Jersey sponsored. And uh, they flew us to, you know, from all over the country, flew us into New Jersey. And we met with uh, doctors at Rutgers. And, you know, it was quite a sophisticated uh, examination for, I think it took seven days. Hmm. Well, hold on a second, Ted. You're breaking up there. Huh? All right. Uh, re- repeat again, sir. Oh, okay. I said, uh, I did logistics while I was going through the New Jersey Asian Orange trials. Uh, I found out that uh, I was in the most heavily sprayed area during the most heavily sprayed time. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh. And I can remember. 
remember sitting there having rice eating our sea rations. And if we had pulled up to the bank and were you know, shaving under a ball tree, you could hear the, the ace rice hitting the leaves. Holy and shit. So this stuff was literally raining down on us and into our food and water supply. And, and that's how I, that's how my contact is anyway. Yeah, it just permeated everything. Yeah, I had uh, two of the, uh, I lived at this apartment complex in Hollywood, and uh, two of the guys who lived there at the apartment I used to talk to all the time, Vietnam guys, and both uh, were waiting on their, uh, you know, for the settlement to come in from their, you know, because they had finally acknowledged after, you know, so many years that they're, oh, yeah, I think uh, it's an issue. <laughs> you know. when they did that. But the lawsuit that they had, they had hundreds of lawyers. Right. And I got a, I, from a little side question, I got a, at one point, I got a paper written down the lawyers by name and how much they received for their work on the Agent Orange lawsuit. And then they tell you, okay, if you die from Agent Orange, your family will get like $3,475 or something. Oh, wow. And then you look at the payments out to the lawyers, it was in the millions of dollars. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I had a few, you know, a few of my friends, their parents, you know, their fathers died of, uh, you know, the cancer that they got from Agent Orange. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, growing up as a kid, you know, so I was born in 1969, so... When I'm, you know, five, six, seven, cruising around the neighborhood like you used to be able to do, and you would see the effects sometimes in people's front yards, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. And uh, still to this day, you know, um, there's still a lack of uh, mental health care, just all around, not to mention um, oh, yeah. for the military uh, men and women who serve. And uh, how many are coming back from overseas with, you know, traumatic brain injuries that are going, you know, what is it that they say up to 80%? You know, that's, a that's you know, it all needs to be treated. And what people don't understand when also when you become disabled or you're breaking down because of something, they all, you know, part of that care of making yourself better 100% all the way around, you got to get your mind straight or at least not as crooked, you know, and, uh, yeah. You know, I mean, is it, is it getting better now with with the vets that are coming back? I mean, you know, like in I mean, recent times, or is it still a little? Well, let me put it this way: when I was first being treated, first time I went in uh, was in 1979. I was living in New York City. My doctor looked like he was an eighty-year-old man, and I you know, so little about my wounds and everything. And he looked at me and says, well, they'll probably do you 10% for your tinnitus. Nothing for the hearing loss, just for the tinnitus. And, um, but we don't pay for scars. Says, I don't talk about scars. Yeah. You know, and it's just, it's, they, they drove you away by denying. Yeah. And they would make you prove, you know, like you in Vietnam, make you prove you don't mean the all this stuff. And they, was, they had all the records. Right. And what we had to do at the time was send up uh, to, uh, oh, I can't remember which state it was, it was something like Michigan or uh, 
brothers faced up in that area. Uh, and uh, we'd have to get our records from them and then take the records to the VA. And then they'd have to go through their song and dance before they approved anything. And most of the time, they'd say, oh, that's not enough. Go back and get more. Right. And what it was, it was designed to uh, defeat the veteran so that he wouldn't add to the budget. Correct. And the, the VA that I walked to in Los Angeles, out in Westwood, years ago, they actually had a, a kind of drive through the main lobby in his Jeep, drive through the doors, jump out of the Jeep, and he shot every president's picture off the wall. So that's the kind of frustration. Right. And then yeah. going on back in the early 80s, uh, you go in and you talk to you do in life. There's always lies where you at. And uh, you talk to somebody sitting behind the desk and they, you know, you where to go. And they were some real mind-curing civilians working in the government job. And they would get so rude at times and so nasty, fist fights would break out. If the desk would actually jump over the desk and, and start punching them. Yeah. Oh, wow. And if that didn't happen, they, they'd send you down to records, and records would pull the appropriate files from whatever clinic you're supposed to go to. Then you'd have to hand carry these paper documents yep. into that clinic. Then once you went through and they added on to the, the records, they'd send them back. Uh, for the records, you didn't have to take them back. But you had to go through all these songs and dances, you know, just to get a toothache taken care of. Right. That, that was also very defeating. Yeah. And it's humiliating. You know, right. Talk to your country, maybe got wounded, maybe lost an arm, a leg. Right, and it's always easier to make someone feel heavier when they're already struggling to carry the weight in their head, you know, like, so I had a company for years here and, uh, we outfitted people's homes once they became paraplegic, quadriplegic, um, end of life issues. We worked with the VA, we worked Medicare, Medicaid, a lot of gunshot victims. Um, so a lot of people who don't have, um, who are not flush with cash, you know? And, um, so every time, you know, here's what I do. I'm like, okay, here's what's going on. Da, 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 da. You know, because I would meet with them and I would explain, here's what you can do. Now, I didn't get paid for this part. This is how it works. So what they're going to do is they're going to kick it back the first time because that's what they do. Because most people give up after they kick it back. So they're going to kick it back once, expect it. Now, when you go, when we go back the second time, I already have a letter written. And here's the policy, uh, you know, the government policy number. And here's the, you know, the keywords that you need in order for them to push it next to the next round. And because your mom and you're advocating for your child, even though there's something cheaper available for your son or daughter, this one's better and will last longer. And also, by the way, they don't tell you, but you have XYZ amount of money to spend every year for your disability care. So what we're going to do here is we're going to plan five years ahead and we're going to start implementing stuff five years ahead of whatever the situation is. Sometimes you could do that. You know, sometimes with MS, you couldn't because you can wake up one morning and you can't walk. 
but there's other situations where you can plan ahead and have the stuff done ahead of time rather than reactionary and then putting the crappiest thing in that breaks that doesn't work stresses everyone out but people don't know that the first time they always kick it back just like with insurance if they say no fuck you you pay them you know you write enough letters and get enough people in that line you can make it happen but they're not in business really to help you they are but they also their job is to block you right away and right, most so people worry about the bottom line right? well yeah because right being disabled is a full-time job yeah you know not you know if you're seriously disabled and you're going through something it's a full-time job between therapy physical therapy you know um, occupational therapy, doctor's appointments, this, that, and the other. Maybe you can't work now because you can't lift the weight or whatever it is. You can't walk. You know, it's this multi-tiered thing, and it's literally all-consuming. So people don't yeah. really understand, like, the stress of, you know, people are like, oh, look at these guys just sitting at home disabled. Like, dude, they're not sitting at home. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know? That's that's a real frustrating part that a lot of people don't know. Or because they have insurance, they just, you know, you know what I mean? Like there's a certain thing, oh, it's the disabled or the, you know. Uh, yeah. You know. Yeah, it's crazy. Man. Hey, Ted. We lost Ted again? Hold on a second. All right. He's on a boat, so hold on a second, guys. So, yeah, so I don't know uh, where you dropped out, but I was just explaining the frustration of, you know, basically if you're disabled, it's a full-time job. People don't understand that who have um, better care, you know, or elite care, quote-unquote. You know, they don't understand the frustrations of it and what they actually have coming. So doing this planning ahead, you know, kind of changed. And it was weird when I came out here and I started doing this, um, there wasn't really a job description for it. So I'm, I'm an accessibility consultant. So that, boom, all of a sudden, you know, now that's a thing. And uh, people would wonder, like, how are you getting into everywhere? I'm like, well, you guys don't even treat people like humans. You know, it's just a case. It's not a case. You know, every time when I talk to someone, if they're in a wheelchair, I bend down. I get below their eye line. I'm never above theirs. You know, and it's uh-huh. it's a... Uh, it's a respect thing, and they didn't have that in there. I also wanted to try to involve some style and stuff, but you know, now you know it's kind of cool to see because we were big fast, and then we got crushed from the hospitals. Long story, but whatever. But that's what we were doing, and now it's the model all across you know the state yeah, right and, right. and elsewhere. So whatever, but uh, people don't really understand what what it is. Um, to go through a disability and try to, and then if it's another, then, you know, then it keeps on compounding. And, you know, uh, Ted is like, you know, uh, Jason or or like uh, Freddy Krueger as far as like, you know, he keeps on getting up. Like, you know, you got hit by a a freaking truck not too long ago, Ted. Yeah, I did. Was that five, six years ago? Yeah, don't like that. It was a double compound fracture in my left leg. My my foot was literally dangling by muscle and skin. Wow. And, uh, yeah, it was, I almost lost my foot. I was really lucky they took me to Cedar sinai and I had one of the top five surgeons in the country. Yeah. 
the Lord struck and they saved my foot. So, yeah, I was a lucky guy. Were you crossing the street or something? I mean, how did that happen? What's that? I'm sorry. Uh, I was just wondering how that happened. Were you, like, crossing the street and somebody... Uh, no, I was on my motorcycle on my way to work. And I pull up to a traffic light. I'm sitting there. And all of a sudden, my, my handlebars shook. And I'm like, what? I looked over to my left. And I was looking at the top of the wheel well of a Peterbilt dump truck. Oh, wow. Loaded with and just at that point, I looked down to see where the tire in my foot was about a second and a half too late because the tire rolled up on my foot. Oh, wow. And so I started beating on the fender. Yeah. And the guy's music was so loud, he didn't hear it. And the pedestrian jumped up on the guy's running board, beat on his window, and told him to roll back. If he would have rolled back straight, I might have had a broken toe or two. But he did. He turned the wheel. Oh shit! Until my bones one one out one side of my leg, one one out the tibia went out one side, the tibia went out the other side. Oh and man! Balancing the bike on my right foot, and it was pretty ugly. And it was something to look at. I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> That's all. I had. To, I had to, Cut the engine off and lay the bike down, but when I did, I had to lay it on top of my left, my right leg. Yeah. And oh no. Just, just, and so I, I went out from underneath the bike, and uh, the guy that jumped on the truck, he said, "Don't look at your foot." I said, "I already did." Right. Yeah. You know, and there was quite a crowd there looking at my foot hanging off, so I just waited for the ambulance. And, Yikes! Uh, you know, nothing else I got to do. I had him, had him uh, take my computer out of the saddlebag and roll the bike up and lock it on the sidewalk. And I called my office and I said, "I don't think I'm going to be in today." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, like a lot of guys listen to this podcast, and you know, because, you know, guys have a darker sense of humor, tends to be that yeah. way. All the guys were thinking, uh, what about the bike? <laughs> Was the bike okay? Absolutely. <laughs> I laid it down for myself on purpose. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Nice. And then uh, had some pedestrians stand it up and roll it up on the sidewalk and lock it for me. And... Uh, then they take me away in the ambulance. And this ambulance had absolutely zero shock absorbers. Oh, of so course. Holy crap. Right. <laughs> uh-huh. And about now, man, I'll tell you, it wasn't my first ride in an ambulance, but this was one of the more memorable ones. Right. Right. Now, Ted, you also were a prop, you also were a prop guy for a long time. Oh, yeah. I, I built sets and props and, you know, did some acting and modeling and all that stuff. Yeah, it's Hollywood. Yeah. Now, let me... Uh, okay, so I was a... I, I did props. I was a special effects guy. Yada, and sometimes they mix. You know, the prop guys are working with the special effects guys or vice versa. And uh, you're yeah, working bro, with... I did a... Go ahead. 
I said I did. I had done a few uh, special effects. Yeah. So okay. So I was you know for mostly like ten years I was basically a special effects guy, but I worked in you know. Um. Recently, there's been something in the headlines. Um, what are your thoughts? Because you hear a lot of people who have never been on a set, who've never don't know what the protocols are for you know handling firearms, and you know there's a certain th- and like when that happened, I got so incensed because that should never, never happen. You know, so what were right. your what were your thoughts on that? Because there's obviously the protocols all across the board, and in my opinion. You know, yes, there is failures in every step of the way. Alec Baldwin's also a producer, but Alec Baldwin has worked with firearms many times, and this has nothing to do with, you know, I think he's a a great actor. I think he's a funny comedic actor. Um, So it's not like a political thing with me. You know what I mean? I don't like the way he treats women, but that's besides the point. The bottom line is, in my opinion, he pointed the gun at a human being and pulled the trigger. Right. And that's rule number one. Doesn't matter who it is. In my opinion, that's what really just, you know, not all the failures, right. but the fact that that happened. Well, the thing is, when you, I'm going to okay. jump in on that one. You're talking about, he was rehearsing a POV, a point of view. Yeah. And there are times when you are aiming right at the camera. Sure. Or right next to the camera. Right. Because that's the shot that they want. Correct. So I don't fault him for that. Right. But I, I've been on, I, I knew years ago, I knew a, a, a young actor who was on the set with John Hexham uh, the day that John Hexham uh, killed himself with a blank. Yeah. I used to watch that and, show when I was a kid. Yeah. Well, the young kid that was the, little young star he used to I used to know him mm-hmm. and we would talk about it anyway I have also been on set where I had a gun yeah more than once and I'd go to the prop master we'd go to the weapons guy they'd hand me the, they'd check the gun they'd hand me the gun if it was a six shot I'd take and I'd check it make sure that you know the firing the the primers had all been punched. Right. But then I'd go and fire, I'd click off all six. Yeah. Papers. But there's no way that anything was going to happen in case I had to point the gun at somebody. Correct. And I did have to point the gun at an A-list actor, right, in a close range within, you know, two feet. Okay, so you so couldn't really I- cheat that shot. You couldn't cheat the angle on that one. What's that? I'm sorry. You couldn't cheat the angle on that one because it was too close. Right, exactly. And it was a big budget movie. And uh, like I said, A-list actors. And I had to pull it on it and point, you know, point it right at him. And you actually pointed at his head. And my dialogue was, "Oops!" Like you made a mistake, kind of thing. <laughs> and we went into our our dialogue, but. Before every take, regardless of how many takes we took, mm-hmm. I'd go through the same procedure each time. Right. Now, here's your, your scenario with, with Baldwin. I think that the last 
he was the last in the chain of command. He should have examined the gun. Correct. He fired off all five or six chambers away from everybody. So if there was something that you know slipped by, he'd be shooting the dirt instead of a, a person. Right. You know, because what I would I, I, go ahead. I thought I, I him. Right. Being the last one in line because he didn't check. Yeah, and no one wants anyone. No one wants anyone to get hurt on set. We're you know we're doing pretend here. We're entertaining people, and uh, you know, right. um, you know my procedure. You know, I'd go, "Hey, Ted, what's going on? Okay, so today you're going to be using a you know a uh, Smith and Wesson three fifty seven. Here's the da da da. You know, show you here's you know the, you know I'd open up the chamber and I would hold it at you know after each shot. You know, I would unload it. If, if there were blanks in there and you were firing off, you know, side to the camera and you're shooting blanks, tow, 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 then I would come in, yeah. say cut, and I would take the gun, I'd empty it, I'd show, you know, I'd show you it's empty, I would hold on to it, and then when you got to the next time you're doing the take, I would load it in front of you, explain to you what's going in there, you know, click it and hand the gun to you, then you inspect it. You know, there's a certain... You know, so the fact that it just happened in the first place is just mind-blowing. And a lot of people who don't work in movies don't understand that. You know, people are like, oh, it happens all the time. No, it doesn't. Because we take it seriously. A, a lot of, you, can get, you can die in a film set pretty easily. You know, there's a lot going oh, on. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> there's a lot going on there. You know, like we had a guy who was working on, uh, from our shop, he was working on, uh, it was the Hulk Hogan nanny movie, whatever that was. And the gag was, um, there's a trap door in the floor. So he goes on stage and he goes before anyone's there and he's testing it and he doesn't have anyone with him. That was mistake number one. He should have had someone with him. Two, uh, you're supposed to use sandbags on the trap door. Okay, the guy, you know, Hulk Hogan's 280, so we'll put 300 pounds on there, test the trap door. He went to the trap door and bounced on it and it opened. And oh, it, yeah, so he was in a coma for like two weeks and then he passed away. But something, I mean, that's how easy it is to get hurt on a film oh, yeah. set, you know? People don't understand. There's a lot of shit going on. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> you get a crew of like 100 people. All with different jobs, all with their, their focus on their job. Right. Because it's costing literally hundreds of thousands of dollars a minute at times. Yeah. And you, you, you have to stay focused. You have to be creative. You have to do whatever is required, but you have to do it safely. Right. And some people don't understand the safety part of it. Yeah, like one time we're out in the middle of the desert and we're doing... Uh working with Tony Kay, who directed uh, American History X, U2 Rattle and Hum. So we're doing this, like, three-minute Volvo commercial. But So we build this largest uh, tornado right. rig. So it's a 50-foot – it actually has a 50-foot tornado that it creates, a vortex, 50-foot vortex. So we're doing this commercial, da-da-da-da-da. The shot – we bought this drug, uh, drug repo home in the desert that we could blow up like a tornado hits it. So it's rigged to blow up, 
it starts raining in the middle of the desert, right out of uh, Victorville, right outside of Edwards. And, you know, it rains three times a year, you know. And the director's screaming oh. at my boss, Hey, you fucking can't fucking do it, fucking. And, like, no, when you, when you have explosives going on, it's, the director's not in charge. You know, that's the effects lead. No one, he's not in charge, you know what I mean? Because they have the power to shut it down, people could die. And uh, right. so the generator was sitting. Hey, uh, you're breaking up a lot, buddy. Oh, okay. All right. So yeah. the so the generator is sitting in. Uh, it's the desert. There wasn't a puddle there before. So the generator, all of a sudden, it rains really quick. The generator is sitting in water, and the the director's screaming at my boss. Rattles my boss. He plugs it in, creates a ground loop, and the house blows up. I mean, Damn. that's how easy it is to, you know, things to go south. Ted, you there? All right, hold on. Let's get him back. Right? Damn it. Uh, anyway, on, on that film I was talking about, um, that it was like, it was a big, a big fucking movie. Uh, I'm trying to think who wrote it. It was uh, the guy that did Titanic. Oh, Cameron. James Cameron. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. It was his film. He wrote it. I was shooting a Rolling Stones video down the street from you guys working on that scene, one of the scenes that you're in in that movie. We were literally shooting down, shooting on the same street that night. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, because we knew it was going on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we, we do a take, and... Um, Catherine Bigelow was the director. Yes. And uh, she was lovely to work with. I'm sitting there with the, the lead of the show, right? You know, and after each take, she'd walk us back to the monitor. We'd stand there together looking at the monitor, and then she'd give us both notes. Yeah. Sometimes she didn't give me notes. Sometimes she didn't give him notes. And then we'd go back and we'd do the scene again. But we're walking back one time, and I don't know if it was after the final take or not, and he said, let me take a look at that gun. So I handed it to him. I said, be careful with it. I said, it's, you know, and he puts it up to his head like he's going to pretend uh, oy, uh, oy, oy. Lit. Well, I grabbed him, and I almost broke his damn arm. <laughs> you and got it. In a loud voice, I don't you ever fucking do that again. Right. This is in front of the entire cast and crew. Right. And it shocked him. And I, I got the, the gun over to the prop master, and I thought about it for a minute, and I said, geez, I just, the, the lead of the show, I just embarrassed him in front of the cast and crew. So I went up to him and uh, said, if you like, I said, I'll apologize in front of the cast and crew for you because I didn't mean to embarrass you. And then I told him the John Hexham story. Yeah. And he goes, you have nothing to apologize. Thank you for what you did. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Did that happen to be Mr. Ray Fines? What's that? <laughs> that was uh, Ray Fines. I said, well, did, did that happen to be Ray Fines? Wasn't, wasn't that the lead actor in that one? Or you want yeah, I didn't say Right, I know you didn't say that. I'm just I'm just speculating on a hypothetical guess. 
But uh, uh, you pretty much spe- you, you speculate if you were shooting down the street, you know who the fuck it was. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, yeah. So we were shooting a Rolling Stones video with the. Uh, 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 the Scotts Brothers Company, and uh, they wanted to use the same buildings that had the uh, the arches, and that was the one where the Rolling Stones or Giants, like you know, uh, Which, cr- was that the Batwan album? Uh, you know, I'm not Ted. I'm not really a big Stones fan. It was the one where they're walking like giants, and it's in black and white, and they're walking through L.A. and New York, and they're like it, giants. It, I, I I worked on. Uh, Stones album, I believe it's called Babylon. We worked at the bakery downtown for one of the setups, and uh, it was just dark and dirty and nasty. And then we worked at the, oh, I can't remember the name of the motel, the one with the bananas as you're going up high, or uh, not Highland, when you're getting on the freeway in, uh, okay. on the 101 North. Yeah. Yeah, the one that it'd be on the left side of the road as you're heading up north. Yeah, yeah, the one that's in like a bunch of like shitty heist films or, or uh, you know, genre heist films. That could be. Uh, yeah, and we did a thing in the, the swimming pool, and I think it was, I don't know if it was Nick or um, an extra, what we did is we had built a platform underneath that you couldn't see underneath the, the surface of the water. And uh, we had plexiglass, and it was like about an inch under the water. Yeah. And this person would appear to be walking on water. Right. Was the gap. Uh, yeah, yeah, plexiglass or Lexan. <laughs> we used to use both for that kind of thing. Those are always cool shots. Oh, getting back to it, yeah. um, I want to tell a quick story about uh, Prop Gun. So <clears throat> the, sh- the shot that we're doing, we're only there for like a day. So we're, we're in on this, you know, B movie. We're there for a day and it has to be done. So it's like a mob boss and there's a guy, you know, at a pool. And the, the shot is the guy pulls out a gun, shoots the guy in the back of the head. And it's, spo- and it's supposed to splat, you know. And uh, so we packed like, you know, ground beef. We put uh, some pineapple in there, oatmeal. Uh, some what you know, just some crap in there. Pack it around mm-hmm. the explosive charge, and we had a plate that was on the back of the guy's head that would you know protect him from any impact. So right, right. yeah, so we have this thing set up, and the director's like, "So here's to go. You ready? Yeah, everything's ready to go. Okay, boom, rolling and action, and fire." The guy shoots the blank off to the side um and we detonate the squib and uh the director threw up (laughs) (laughs) it was like this fast he's like too real too real too real yeah oh okay too good yeah so we just went this thing is now is and then most people don't know is now they're not using real blanks on most sets. They're using a flash out of the gun, right? You know, out of the barrel. Correct. And then they add the sound in post. Yeah, you know, akin to a paintball gun, itself. in theory. Pardon me. Akin to like a paintball gun. Um, no, it looks like a real gun. But right, right, right. But like, 
Yeah, like for instance, when like um, okay, so doing this one time, Sylvester Stallone's running down um, an alley, and it's a brick alley, and I have to run with him and shoot dust, dust, spark, dust, dust, spark, dust, dust, spark. You know what I mean? So it's not necessarily a firearm that you know. Maybe I didn't you know address that. It's not. It looks like a gun, but it's not a gun. Yeah. You know, and a lot of the people, you know, who aren't on scene, they have firearms like in World War II movies and everything. People don't know those right. are just, you know, molded plastic and painted. Right. You know, but uh, I don't know why there was uh, live rounds on that set anyway. I mean, that's just bizarre to me. Yeah, they, yeah they, they, they should not have had live rounds there, period. Right. Uh, and like, hey, you're in the desert. You want to go shoot at some cactus or something like that. So those those rounds should have been in a locked container. Right. Nowhere near the set. Yeah, in its own box. Book, something. Right. Yeah, under lock and key. <clears throat> and then brought out and account for each round that comes out of the locked box. Right. And, you know, it, it's a, yeah. Because I've been on sets out in the desert and stuff, and, and guys would bring their... I brought my own handgun out. Sure. But it never got... Nobody ever twirled it. Nobody ever pretended to shoot it. Nobody ever put it up to their face or their head. Yeah. Pointed at anybody. Yeah, one of the, um, someone I know, her brother passed away um, that way. He had just became a uh, police officer, and he twirled his gun, and it went off. Oh, God. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, uh, those guys are skilled who do that kind of thing, but it's not with live rounds, you know. No, well, even like in Vietnam, I lost one of my very dear friends, drinking buddies, because uh, a new guy came over and uh, he put an M16 up on the canvas of the boat, the roof of the boat. My buddy walks by, awake. Comes, dips the boat, the M16 slides off the deck, the, the uh, canvas, and hits butt first on the dock, and the guy didn't have the safety on. Oh, no way. Yeah, and so it literally went right through his. It was weird how it happened. It went through his fucking jaw. Oh. The top of his head off. Damn. Yeah. Yikes. And they had to take, they had to take the kid, the boot that, uh, made the mistakes they had to literally rush him off the base because some one of our other guys would have killed him right yeah so ted um how did you end up how did you up to hollywood working on movies i mean you know between the time you came home and uh and ended up there doing doing that kind of work well i was uh living up in rhode island had a business and uh, a wife, and the uh, family pulled a fast one on me, and because uh, I had just sold a bunch of family stock, and they, <clears throat> the daughter and the mother and father, planned this out. They went and emptied the bank account out. Oh and, shit! Yeah. So I went to New York. My family lived in New York and in the city, and I get there and. Uh, after I had been there a couple of days, my mom says, okay, well, what are you going to do for a job? I 
like that. What do you mean? A job. I own businesses. She said, what business do you own now? I well, uh, she said, yeah, so go get a job. And I think I was about, about, I want to say 30. And uh, so I said, what am I going to do here? I, you know, she says, go be a waiter. I said, I don't care, waiter, come on. Waiters, uh, they're for sale. I buy them and sell them. He said, really? How much money is in your pocket right now? You ain't buying and selling anybody. He said, go out and work. So I get a job as a waiter. And uh, I moved to another restaurant, got a job there. And... I liked the restaurant and everything, and it was a fun place to work. And the waiters were just, they had an energy about them. Yeah, I love being and, a waiter, man. I loved it. Yeah, it's like, what's this energy about? And they were all performers. Yeah. And one thing or another. And uh, I was, huh, that was interesting. I really liked this creative juice. I didn't know what it was. Right. And... So I asked them, you know, looking, and they said, well, and they'd tell me about, you know, going to classes and auditions and looking for agents and all that stuff. And I thought, to them, you know, they'd be talking, oh, I missed this callback, or my agent did this, or blah, 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 that. I thought to myself, shit, if I can get around the negative part of it, I could do this. Right. So I wound up. In an acting class, the acting coach was pretty well known. The uh, studio was in uh, Carnegie Hall. Nice. And he was a Korean War vet. And he had been wounded and almost died on the battlefield. So we had a sympathical. Right. And he took me up the wing. And I was the only person at the time, I don't know if it's changed since, but uh, that he allowed to study every day. And he was incredible. Uh, he had uh, modified Meisner's method. And so anyway, that's going on. During that time, I've become the captain at Tavern on the Green. And during that period of my time, uh, I meet this film crew, director, producers, writers from a, a ongoing TV series. And they, they sit at my table on brunch on Sundays. They fly out from the West Coast just for something to do, and they you know, they pick up the stewardesses or whoever, and they bring all these girls in with them, and they sit down and they order you know two or three bottles of red, two or three bottles of white, open the wine, let them breathe. Meantime, they'll have a cocktail. I'm like, oh boy, this is going to be a good gig. <laughs> so they they have a very bawdy sense of humor which was right up my alley. And I did all kinds of crazy stuff. They, the first thing I did to test the waters is on my way to work one Sunday when I knew they were going to be there, I got these little boys, you know, wind-up frogs and fish that you can, tiny things. You can, and I'd stick them in the Bloody Marys and hand them the glass and there'd be a fucking frog swimming around the ground. <laughs> And things would get, they, they, they'd carry on. And uh, so then I started doing, they'd order a dessert. And what I would do is I'd go into the kitchen and I'd have the, uh, 
the uh, I'd have the chef take and carve a leak in the shape of a penis. <laughs> <laughs> put it on one of you know a, a tray that I put a dome cover on. Yeah, and then put uh, vanilla or chocolate ice cream for. Right. Oh, we lose him. Oh man! Hold on. Yes. What are the odds of that? You get cut off right as about you're telling the cum story. <laughs> so anyway, I kind of you know, partially for for pubic hair and then a little whipped cream comes off at the end of the week. Take that off the table and and get a big reveal, taking the cover off of the right the, the tray. And the the worst one was. Well, that's not the worst one. Uh, I <clears throat> had him carve up a leak, and we used to give the kids balloons on Sundays and Saturdays at brunch. Mm-hmm. And so I tied about five helium balloons, and I floated a huge penis over their table. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the worst one was, though, well, I had done another dessert one up, and brought it out, you know, they, they were laughing before I even got to the table. Yeah. And seated around me, there were two or three tables of nuns. They came in on a bus, and they hear the laughter, and they watch me coming out with a tray with a big dome cover on it, and I present it to the table, and they're hysterical. And the nuns, what is that? What is that? I'm like, oh, jeez. There we like, go. Like, great. <laughs> yeah. so I, that it's I, the I second coming, like, sister. Yeah, I just <laughs> turned around and presented it. I, this is a, a private, I forgot what I said, some kind of those, um, some kind of quippy thing, but not insulting. And the, the nuns went hysterical on me. <laughs> Man, that wanted to fire me, but. They couldn't for a couple of reasons. I made the best steak tartare at the table because the managers used to sit at my table when they wanted to eat it. And I made the best Caesar salad from scratch at the table. Nice. And on top of that, the man that got me the job, uh, he loaned Mervyn Leroy $5 million to redo the restaurant. Oh, wow. So they really, yeah, they really couldn't fire me. <laughs> nice. You were protected. What's that? I said you were well protected then. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Nice. Hey, Jason, uh, didn't uh, your grandfather drive for, uh, when he was in the military, for uh, Eisenhower? He did, yeah. He was Eisenhower's uh, uh, driver in Panama. Yeah, during World War II. Wow. Yeah. And we've got some pictures yeah, floating around here of him sitting in the Jeep with Eisenhower next to him. Yeah, Eisenhower was the best Republican president that I can recall. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he seemed to, uh, yeah. He got it. Right. You know, and it's unfortunate that, uh, you know, like the divide that's has gone, you know, because we don't get political here. You know, I think both parties are insane. But, um, you know, I wish, uh, you know, Part of this whole thing is having people, you know, have conversation and uh, 
a lot of people seem to have lost the ability to have those, and that's kind of sad. You know what I mean? Because if you refuse to to hear the other side, whatever that other side is, or whatever multiple sides, you're not going to learn, and you're not going to be able to move forward. But is that right in design? You know what I mean? Right. You know, my acting coach, the York, used to say, "God gave you two eyes." Two years and one mouth. That should tell you something. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> nice. Yeah, you know it's yeah. uh, it's uh, you know it's it's a thing. But uh, so Ted, tell it, tell yeah, everyone I'm... what you do um, with your program. Oh, okay. Um, I, I was retired and sitting at home and what am I going to do? Do I want to go to Europe? No, I've been there, done that. Want another car? No, I can only drive one at a time, but I got a nice motorcycle, so I don't need one of those. And I had forgotten about something that, uh, one of my buddies and I, when we were sitting on patrol and not getting, you know, we weren't in a firefight or something. And we were trying to figure out what we'd do when we got home if we lived through the, the, the war. And what we decided we wanted to do was go to Hawaii and get a, a, a fishing boat and do charter fishing and uh, try to focus on veterans because we just loved the water. We loved our boats. We loved the water. And unfortunately, as things do in war, plans change. Things change. People people change. Yeah. And so that dream kind of just kind of fizzled away after I came home. And so I'm sitting there on the couch going, what the hell are we going to do? And I had um, my computer on, and I was opened up to, I don't know who it was, I think maybe Facebook or, yeah, I think it was Facebook. And... <clears throat> Up in the corner, I see this boat come on, an advertisement for a boat. I clicked on it just out of idle curiosity. And I said, oh. And then I started looking at uh, uh, an outfit called Yacht World. And um, started looking at boats. And then the dream came back. But the idea of the dream came back. Right. And... I started to pursue that, and I started looking for boats. And I looked for boats all the way from Key West, Florida, to Tacoma, Washington, before I found the one I'm, I'm sitting on right this minute. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and uh, the idea was to work with veterans, introduce them to the marine life and living and the yacht world because it's so lucrative. Um to be a captain on my boat or as, as an annual job to pay over a hundred thousand a year plus all expenses. I mean, all expenses, rental cars, airplanes to go home for the holidays, you know, your food, everything's all covered. So it's not a bad gig to, to ride on a nice boat up and down the coast. The owners for the buying lots, they're usually, you know, they'll say, okay, go to the Bahamas. And you take the boat to the Bahamas. Then they fly to the Bahamas and they hang out on the boat. 
Right. Then they fly back to York or wherever, and they send the boat someplace else. So it's not like you have the, the ownership always you know, on board trying to run the boat. Right. Uh, well, and then with that, um, a lot of, I'm in a military town here at uh, Portsmouth, Virginia. And Norfolk, Virginia is one of the biggest yeah. shipping areas. No, sure, yeah. And, and so for veterans, if they want to get married on a boat, but they can't afford the 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 one, the big couple hundred people boats across the way at Norfolk, if they don't leave the dock, they can have like 50 people on the boat for a wedding. And they do that. They give a, a damage deposit just in case I need to have something clean, somebody spills something. Sure. Okay. And then if I don't use it, well, I only use a portion of it, they get the rest of it back, and they have the boat for free. And oh, nice. If they want to go out on the water and have the ceremony, that limits the number of people due to Coast Guard regulations. And the only thing they get charged with is the captain, which is about, I think, 350 for about four hours, and uh, the fuel, which will be about... Uh, I don't know, like under a thousand dollars for both of them. Gotcha. So for under a thousand dollars, they can get married on the boat. Now, what also we're offering is we'll scatter ashes at sea for the family for free. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm also working with the Mid Atlantic Maritime Academy to get the guys enrolled. So if they were a machinist or a welder or whatever, and they have they're skilled at their trade. They go through, and this school can do anything from air conditioning to making you captain of a cruise ship right, and everything in between. And so they, they would go to the school. During the time they're in school, they come, they'd work on this boat. They'd give us a little you know, attention. And then when we went on, uh, when we did a charter, or something, they would go on the boat so they would get their sea time, their their hours. They would start collecting hours. Right. Uh, so that when they graduated, they, they had a resume started. And then, like, if you were an aluminum welder and you got your, your certificate for marine welding, well, the money they make, uh, they can pick and choose their clients. It's just it's really ridiculous. There's such a shortage of um, different tradesmen. Oh, for sure. Industry. Wow. Yeah. So we're doing things like that. Um, we do, uh, there's festival events where we'll take a bunch of veterans on the boat and we'll go through the festival and the tall ships parade and stuff like that. Uh, and, you know, like if, if uh, somebody gets a promotion and they want to have a, a party on a boat, they can do that. Uh, they have to pay certain fees, you know. Sure. They're not, um, they're not like commercial rates. They're like heavily discounted. Yeah. We will, we will do full-on charters, uh, but just day charters, no overnight stuff, um, for the civilians. And their money helps take care of the boat for the, the veterans. Gotcha. So far, I've got 
Those are a million dollars invested, and I haven't taken a paycheck in four years. Wow. That's uh, that's what happens, though, you know, when you're – what's more important, you know? Obviously, you're able to do it, so, <clears throat> you know, you obviously love to do it, so the passion's there, and that's a great uh, great program. Now, is there a way for people to donate if uh, they're interested in your program and they want to help people out? Yes, there is, but I'm not going to give you the information this time. We can have a conversation in the future um, because I'm going through some paperwork and, and rectifying some issues gotcha. with uh, IRS. I'm, I'm all legit and everything, but there's an issue uh, that I did not become aware of until recently because the person that was handling that, the director who was handling that, is no longer with us. Gotcha. And didn't lay out, didn't, didn't walk away properly, let's put it that way. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, once that <clears throat> once that's uh, you know up and able, uh, we'll uh, have you back on so you can tell us, you know how uh, people can help out and stuff like that. So, okay, you also owned a playhouse, correct? I did. I no longer. How did that all come about? Was, well, uh, I had a playhouse. In uh, North Hollywood, and we were producing a lot of plays, got a lot of awards, and then I was diagnosed with cancer and had six months to live. So I kind of had to change my focus. Yeah. Uh, and that killed me to walk away from that. I love that so much. Yeah. And how long did you have the theater? Short time, only about. Uh, 18 to 24 months. And, uh, but how did you, so how did, so you obviously liked acting, so then you moved into theater, or is it more of a business thing, or you just happened to fall into, like, a sweet kind of a deal? Yeah, well, what happened, actually, is my girlfriend went there, and that thing they, I don't know, they probably still have, you could be a member of a theater, and it would cost you 25 35 45 $50 a month, whatever the fee was. And I didn't believe in paying for what I studied and learned to do. I figured I should get paid for it rather than having to pay. Right. But she was over there. She was all excited. She got a job at a play. And she said that I had to come with her because there was a perfect part in a play for me. And I said, yeah, but I'm not going to you know, pay to do it. So I go there. I get the job as the, you know, the actor. And while I'm rehearsing for that, another person comes up and wants me to audition for a play they're producing. So I wound up acting in one play and rehearsing another one. And while I was doing that, the, the artistic director came up to me out of the blue. And he said, Ted, if I hand you the keys to the theater, will you take over? I said, how much do you owe? Or something like about 20000 I said, yeah, give me the keys and leave. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Ted Haler. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so I take it you didn't get along with this guy, eh? Oh, we lose him? No, oh, man, I don't know. 
That was yeah, right at the same. Yeah, that was funny. So, okay, so twenty grand, and you told them to get out. That was great. Yeah, and uh, the theater had about seventy-five members at the time, and many of them not, should not have been there. And you know, I trained in New York, so I was rather serious about this shit. Sure. And um, so I held a meeting. The following week, and had you know, all like seventy some people there. I said, "Okay, you all heard uh, by now that I'm running the theater." I said, "You have to understand something. I'm not your mother. I'm not your father. I'm not your boyfriend, and I'm not your girlfriend. So don't try to fuck me." (laughs) If you have a problem with that, the door's at the back of the room. Right, exit now. So within about three or four weeks, I was down to about 25 to 30 serious people. And we started to work, started doing plays. Yeah, you know, like a lot of the, you know, like I guess you can call them hangers on, the 40 people that left. You'll get more done with those 25 people that are, you know, ready to go. Yeah. The other thing is they were paying their dues, and they thought that entitled to, to a role in a play. Right. And I explained it. I said, no, I will give you all the first option. We'll, we will audition you first. And if you fill the role, you fill the role. If you don't, I'll advertise in Dramalog, and I'll hire whoever I need to hire for that particular role. I said, you, there's no guarantee here. Right. The only guarantee is you have a place to come, a place to learn, and be a part of something. Other than that, it's all up to you. If you've got the talent, great. If you don't, well, see you later. Right. So there's a bunch. Uh, so there were some mediocres there trying to just pad the resume. Yeah. Well, they, they, they just they didn't understand the the whole deal. You know, it's it's so you, you, you're not paying for the right to audition. You know, that's not what you're paying for. You're, part of, you're paying to be part of a theater company. Right. And you might have to work props. You might have to work on sets. You know, you might have to sweep the floor. You might have to clean the bathroom. Yeah. And that's it. And when a play comes up, if there's a part you're, you're suited for, you can audition. If you do a good audition, you get the job. If you don't, you don't. Right. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. Um, me? Nothing wrong with that, you know. Yeah. It's weird that people, th- you know, they just felt entitled that, well, that's weird. You know, yeah. because <clears throat> people, I mean, they may go, oh, well, if they're entitled to have a part in the play and how much did the play cost to put on with costumes, everything else, yada, yada, advertising, everything, you know. Right. It's, uh. Nothing's free. Yeah, I've always. Nothing's found it funny out there in Hollyweird that uh, as soon as someone thinks um, they're more important than they are, they think no one else should reap the benefit. <laughs> right. Oh, well, they laughed 17 times. Therefore, I should get 50% of the purse. No. <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't think so. But, uh, yeah, so how do you like the boat life now? 
I wish I had done it. I wish I had the money to do it 40 years ago. Yeah. Give an example. Now, this this will be for your PTSD guys or along that line. Um, the time I came home from Vietnam was 1967. And I'd been married three times and had a number of wonderful women in my life. And regardless of what the situation was, I always felt like my suitcase was packed. It was under the bed with the handle sticking out so I could grab it and run at any time. I can relate to that, Ted. Right. And when I... Hmm? <laughs> I said I can relate to that. Yeah. And when I bought the boat, came back from... Hollywood to, to be on the boat the second week I unpacked the suitcase wow you're ready yeah. to ready to stay yeah yep no He's... more suitcase under my bed I'm, I'm, I'm home from Vietnam you nested well welcome home dude absolutely you've nested yeah. so you live full time on the boat Ted So do you? Yeah, is, I'm, I'm the largest. I'm the largest permanent boat in this marina. Wow. Yeah. So are your plans on expanding the number of boats? And have you expanded the number of boats? Yeah, I've got a 31 foot first craft commander that somebody donated. That's um, cool. We've got to raise some funds to, to do some work on that because that's another part of the program. Is there's a company that makes. Uh, there's a couple of companies. They make skis and uh, wakeboards that have seats on them and little outriggers. So even if you lost your both your legs, your hips, I can strap you into a chair and you can go water skiing. Yeah. That's and really so that, cool. That's that. Um, also, yeah, I do want to have more boats. Uh, just... You know, keep waiting for uh, people to discover us and find out what we're doing, believe in it, and then donate the vote. Right. I won't be buying more. This one is enough to buy. Yeah. I think so that's is great. It, Ted, is, is, the, is it a diesel boat or is it a sailboat? What type of boat is it? Oh, no, this is a, it's a 1985 Broward Flush Deck is the, the, the model. And it's okay. a aluminum hull. And uh, weighs 147 tons. Wow. Uh, Jesus. Driven by two V12 diesels that are turbocharged and supercharged. Oh, wow. They, they crank out 775 horse of engine. Uh, uh. Uh, cruising speed 
if you keep it around 10 knots, uh, and at that, you're, you're burning about 40 gallons of fuel an hour. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Now, she's a big, she's a big one. She's heavy. Um, a lot of room all over the place. It's just, it, 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 it's pretty nice boat. Yeah. Now, Fantastic. She's 1985. She's 30-some years old. And a lot of the stuff on it's original. So it's got some wear and tear, so to speak. Right. But she's still beautiful. Um, and over the course of time, when donations start to flow again, uh, we're going to be doing some repairs and, and upgrades, you know, new carpets and stuff like that. Uh, but the bones of the boat, that's the important part. The bones of this boat, the engines have less than 500 hours on them since the last rebuild. Oh, okay. So they're like, you know, <clears throat> new. And they're, they're Detroit diesel, so it's kind of like, like having a Harley. If you're not leaking oil, you better fucking put some oil in the back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? I drove trash trailers for a lot of years. I ran some Detroit Series 60s and stuff. Yeah, good, good motors. Yeah. yeah, these are 1292s. Okay. Right. Yeah. Twelve cylinder, ninety-two cubic inches per cylinder. Yeah, that sounds great. I'd like to see it sometime. Yeah. Well, grab Vince by the collar and come on out. <laughs> I hear you. There you go. We'll do a show from the boat. Let's do it. <laughs> so, speaking of Harley Davidson, so Ted, how did uh, how did uh, your whole involvement? with Harley uh, come about? Oh, that was a fluke. It's kind of like a Schwab story. Uh, I was out in the desert for a couple of months doing a shoot for, uh, what was that? That was Camel Cigarettes for the foreign market. And the theme of the, the Camel Cigarette shoot was like a, um Indiana Jones thing. Okay. And so... I come back into the city after we'd done shooting and it was like a six, seven hour ride on my bike and I'm dirty and I got my gear on the back of the bike, but I decided to stop at Johnny Rockets for a chocolate malt before I go home. Anyway, I pull up, sit down, order my malt and one of my friends saw my bike and he pulls up and he sits down and waiting for my malt to come out and this little redhead girl she looked like she was 12 I was running up to me and she said we want to use you in a commercial we want to use you in a commercial and I said yeah okay call my agent because I was just really gritty just got off from a long long ride no sense of humor whatsoever <laughs> we want to use you we want to see you right now and I think the only thing I could think of is some of my friends are fucking different Right. And so can I have my mom? No, no, now. Oh, shit. So I say, okay. I tell my buddy, you know, you don't see me in 20 minutes or so. Come on, looking for me. And uh, so we go down the street from Johnny. You know, this is on Melrose. And uh, go into an office building, go upstairs to the second floor. She, The door bursts open. And she goes, I found him. I found him. And I'm like, what the hell's going on? And, and she, oh, by the way, it, it, when she came to the chair, yeah, we want to use you in a Harley Davidson commercial. 
And I said, you know, okay, does it pay? Oh, yeah, it pays. So anyway, I go up there, and the producer, the director, wardrobe, uh, two representatives from Harley Davidson, the whole staff of people. And so they started putting clothes on me and taking Polaroids. And I said, geez, you know, I can come back and get cleaned up. She said, no, 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 this is fine. And so we're doing that. She said, what are you doing tomorrow? I said, sleeping. <laughs> you know, <laughs> how about if you're out at the El Mirage Lake bed, right lake bed, and we, we're going to start shooting tomorrow. I said, well, you should call my agent. I don't have time for that. This is the deal you want. Just take it. And so I was like, oh, not that money. Out in the desert for a few days. Bunch of girls, bunch of motorcycles. Yeah, What's bad? Okay. Yeah. So I, I do that, and we shoot the commercial over, I don't know how many days. And uh, that was that. Okay. And then the uh, representative from Harley that was in charge of the clothing division, this was right when the clothing first came out for Harley, back in like 92, mm, 3, 4, someplace in there. And... <clears throat> So I'm out there, and the head of the clothing department pulls me aside and said, we're going to use you in the catalog, too. It would be nice if you asked first. But (laughs) 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 A few months later, we shoot the first catalog, and we shot that up. I think the first one was in Joshua Tree. And so I go up to Joshua Tree for like a week and a half, two weeks. We're wined and dined. I ride brand new motorcycles that aren't even in the showrooms yet. I'm dressed in all brand new clothes, hanging out with a bunch of beautiful women, and they're paying me. <laughs> Man, that must have really sucked. Yeah, that's all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good country, America, you know. <laughs> yeah. As luck would have it. Yeah, as luck would have it. And we shot some stuff up at Ridgecrest. Uh, and there was one shot, they, they called it the OK Corral shot. There's three of us walking down the street. I'm kind of like in the middle, in a step or two out in front. And uh, that picture, literally, almost overnight, I'd be in a restaurant, people would come up to me. Hey, you that guy? Did you sign this? You know, Can I take a picture with you? <laughs> You're a celebrity. Yeah, overnight. Nice. About 30, 40 years. Um, but yeah, and then they... Oh, man. Russians. <laughs> okay. So, uh, okay, so it left well, off, it left off, uh, you were famous for like three or four years. People were like uh, stopping and interrupting you at dinner and signing autographs and stuff. Yeah, well, you know, I was on billboards and newspapers and magazines all over the world. And, uh, because of it, I got other catalogs that I worked on. And I actually did a print job for Gucci on a big, huge two-page spread in all of the, the women's magazines. Nice. Um, yeah, just, you know. Okay, were you single during this time? Yes. Right on. Yeah, but not for 
which which day of the week? I did not during that time. I did not date or go out with anybody that I met when I was doing Harley stuff. Yeah, that's yeah, I, yeah. That doesn't surprise me because you don't want to. Yeah, no, I get it. Yeah, ethics. I think it's called ethics. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have yeah, yeah, but they don't. You know, they don't really. You know that that never really comes up very much these days. You know that whole uh, uh, yeah. uh, 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 ethics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, just... uh, so, so, Ted, are you still riding these days? Uh, actually, no. My bike's in Los Angeles at my my uh, apartment. Uh, I wasn't able to bring it out. I had some things. Uh, I, I didn't move out here because I kept my apartment in case something blew up. And also, uh, I put my mom up in my apartment. Uh, she was in Phoenix. I moved her out from Phoenix and let her stay in my place uh, for free and wound up, you know, taking care of her, paying all the bills. The only thing I didn't pay for was her gas and her food. Mm. Right. Um, That's great. This helped her out a lot. Yeah, what, was, uh, what, uh, what, what you got? What kind of bike you got out there? What are you riding? I've got a 92 Heritage. Oh, and, nice. Uh, yeah. And I, I completely rebuilt it myself. Uh, awesome. Painted it myself. Did all my own powder coating. Uh, you know, all that stuff. And yeah, I had a years ago. I had an '88 Heritage. I loved that bike. I wish I still had it. Um, yeah, I, I'm riding an '18 uh, Ultra Classic right now. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a big couch on wheels. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I was. It's like when I got my bike, I bought it new, and uh, I wouldn't let him put the windshield on. I said, "Leave it in the box. If you put the windshield on the bike, I'm not going to pick it up." <laughs> yeah. If I want to be in a car, I'll be in a car. Don't try to sell me a radio for it because I'm not gonna. I want to hear the sound and I want to feel the wind. That's all I want. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. what it is. So, you know, two each of them. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've eaten my words because years ago, I mean, I rode you know Dinas and you know I had wide glides and stuff and. I always said I'd never have a bike with a windshield. And then, I don't know, I guess I uh, officially got old because I, you know, I saw this thing and I said, yeah, I think I'll take it. Yeah. Well, when I was on one of the shoots, they told me to uh, take a, uh, the fuck was that? The big bagger, you know, the one that's got the trunk on the back and windshield yeah. radio. And so Harley told me, the, the people at Harley said, take this one off for a ride. I said, oh, all right. It's got a windshield. It's got radios. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, no, we're not asking you. We're telling you to take it for a ride. Okay. So I'm out in the... Out in the I said, okay. Then they turned the radio on. And said, Lenny Kravitz, are you going to go my way? Nice. <laughs> so I picked on this thing. And okay, they want me to ride it. I'm going to ride this bastard. So I do. And I start throwing it into turns. And I'm literally dragging the, the floorboards 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, hey, this thing handles really well. I was really shocked. You know, with all that fiberglass and stuff all over the place, I was thinking it's going to be a real tub. Yeah. Oh, man. I, and going out to the shoots, the, the, the girls, the makeup artists, wardrobe people, they, they'd always want to ride with one of us. And I'd get them on that, that big, glide, whatever it was called. I don't know if it was an electric glide or, or, or what. Yeah. But uh, I started going through uh, Joshua Tree, taking the turns, dragging the floorboards, and the girls are going nuts. They're just digging <laughs> the hell. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Nice. So, okay, so now let's connect. Uh, so what is it with, um, what's the connection um, with uh, the amount of veterans who are drawn to uh, to ride? Well, I can only say from my point of view, it's a feeling of freedom. Uh, it also used to remind me of when, when I was off duty in Vietnam, for fun, I'd go up in the helicopters until my commanding officer caught me. We, we went up one night with uh, an outfit called Raider 26, and there was, there was three choppers, you know, three Hueys. And one of them had a, a light board, and it had seven aircraft landing lights on this light board. And there would be another ship that would fly above it with its running lights on, and then underneath it was a dark ship. And that's where I was, sitting with the door gunner. And what they do is they light up the jungle. If they receive fire, they'd be shooting at the, the light ship and the, the one with the running lights on. We weren't running with lights on. So we'd sneak in and scoop in and just shoot the shit out of them. And uh, I was doing that one night. And we got into it. And we took a couple of hits underneath it. And I used to sit in between the two doors uh, against the back of the pilot and co-pilot, they'd have uh, 50 caliber ammunition cans, two or three high. And I, that's where I would sit. Right. Uh, one night, we get into the ship, and uh, all of a sudden, it's the thunk, and it's like right below me. I said, whoa, what the hell was that? <laughs> so we get back to the, 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 the base, and this is at night, and the pilot's underneath the, the, the ship, and I get under there with them. And it took around, and it went right into one of the fifty caliber cans without exploding around. Oh my god! Blow my, blow my whole ass off. Anyway, I'm under there <laughs> looking at the hole, and somebody kicks my feet and calls out my name. And I like, oh fuck! I know that voice. I go out, and it's my CO. He said, "You go up once more, and court martial your ass." Oh shit. Yes, sir. <laughs> and uh, so I, I don't know where, where was that lead. That was about the uh, biker connection. Oh, yeah. It, it, it reminds me of the feeling of flying in a helicopter. Also, you know, when you're doing banking moves, and it's just it's that feeling of freedom, that openness, the 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 control. It's you in control, you in the wind, you in the road. Right. It's just, you don't yeah, there's nothing like it. 
And that's basically like the polar opposite of being a soldier of any kind or stripe is that you have no control, you follow the order? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And also because, you know, being that you've been at war, you're no longer part of the civilian population. Once a veteran, always a veteran. Right. Uh, Once you've been to battle and you've shot people or people have shot at you or you've been wounded, you just don't fit anymore. You're, you know, you go into a special place. And this is a way of, uh, the, the, the bike is also a way of getting away from society. You know, right. And right. It's a way of quietly or sometimes not so quietly saying, I'm different. Leave me alone. Right. Yep. Yeah. Cause when you're, when you're on it, I mean, it's just you and the bike, you know, I mean, that's it. You know, you can focus. There's a, there's a whole different, level of focus you get when you're riding too, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a beautiful thing. It's like uh, people could, you take people and put them in a car and you go over some terrain, some hills and turns and dry and grass and wet, and they have a certain experience. You take that same road and you travel it on a bike you have a whole different experience because in the car, the windshield represents like a television screen. Right. You're watching something. You're not part of it. But on a motorcycle, you're involved in it. You're embedded in it. You're imbued in it. You're part of the yeah. scene. All the smells. I mean, you know, there's, uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's a whole sensory thing, really, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you, you know, on a bike, you'll, you'll have You'll feel, you know, like you go down into a dip and you'll feel a temperature change. Yeah. And you'll smell, you'll go down, like if you go through Bokeh Canyon outside Los Angeles, Bokeh Canyon, when the flowers are in bloom, you go through one turn and it's a certain flower and there's a fragrance. You go another half a mile and go through another turn and there's another fragrance, another, it's just, it's just, you know. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, multi-sensory. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you, you mentioned about <clears throat> looking uh, through a windshield, and it's like you're watching something. I believe uh, Jason's uh-huh. very versed in that, going to all the titty bars he went to where he'd, you know, have to pay $20 for the screen to open up and watch the girl yeah. for a couple of <laughs> hey, hey, you're right. Times Square back in the 80s, man. Yeah. Yeah. During college, I used to take Jason to uh, lingerie shows, and I was like, dude, it's free lunch. He's like, oh, lingerie. I'm like, no, dude, they got free chicken wings. You don't understand. <laughs> Feel bad for you guys. I've never had to go to one of those places. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was only a half block away, and to be fair, at the time my girlfriend was the bartender, so you know, <laughs> right? We were getting free drinks and free chicken wings. <laughs> hey, we were suckers for free food in those days too. We were hungry. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, Jason uh, recorded. Uh, he was the engineer for. Uh, uh, Whitney Houston's "I Will Always Love You." That's his uh, one of his claims to fame over there. He recorded what a about lot Whitney of Whitney Houston. Uh, Jason engineered "I Will Always Love You" from the movie. Yeah, I worked on it. Yeah, yeah. Pete was the engineer, but yeah, I was uh, I was working the stage. You know, Mike the you know Mike the stage and all that stuff. Yeah, oh, he's okay. assistant engineer. He's being too modest, but yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. 
But uh, yeah, so Jason's background is sound and uh, photography. And uh, so, how long did right. you do the uh, the the uh, modeling thing? And which was more lucrative, modeling per day or acting per day? Acting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it was like uh, I think Harley paid me five hundred a day back in the nineties, and um, like my base was at least a thousand a day doing acting. Oh, your SAG minimum was, gotcha. All right, well, that's I interesting. For, well, I started out like everybody else working for minimum, but then, you know, I graduated and started building the the price tag. Yeah. My, you know, my agent. Yeah. Yeah, and people don't know that, you know, uh, there's a minimum if you're a SAG actor and then you, you know. And uh, so what do you think about the whole acting thing today? You know, like, for instance... Ryan Reynolds, okay, I get it. Okay, like when he was a smart ass, a smarmy guy when he did uh, the Wader movie, which was really good. And then he became a serious actor for a little while there. Then he just became Ryan, uh, Ryan Reynolds, and that's all he does. Like, dude, it. I don't think, hey, you know what? I have no idea who that is. Oh, well, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> you lucky bastard, Ted. But uh, yeah, well, you know, it's like people I, I, are, I, people don't act anymore. They uh, if they're like you know, there's certain actors they just show up and they're that person in every role that they do. And it you know, it's not just him, but it's other people doing it. What's your view on that? Because yeah. you studied, you know, yeah, so well, well, you have to. You know, John Wayne did that, but he did it better than anybody. Sure, John was always John Wayne, right? Yeah, it's yeah, a, the new actor. I, I really don't watch much new stuff. I, I prefer to to watch black and whites, uh, you know, just older stuff. The, the film noir. Yeah, my uh, my favorite comedy of all time, and we're gonna do this in, for the Round Dial Theater because once a quarter I do a. Uh, I do a radio play, so I did a parody of War of the Worlds called Woke of the Worlds, and I put that out a um, little bit ago, and then for Christmas, I'm doing a Christmas carol, and Vito Bupkis plays the Scrooge, and then we're going to do uh, Arsenic and Old Lace. To me, that oh, comedy nice. is the, one of the best ever. You can put it up against... Comedies now suck. They're not comedies. They're soft stepities. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Ted, you there? Oh, man. Man. Damn Russians. Russians every time, goddammit. Yeah, so what? So what's your feeling about these people who aren't acting anymore? Like, does that bother you as, a, as a, someone who took it seriously? And I'm not saying they don't take it seriously, but... They take the money seriously. So it's an uh, ethical yeah. thing. Is uh, it? Like I said, Vince, I really don't, I don't watch them. Yeah. I don't watch, I don't watch television series and yeah. all those things. You know, uh, I watch like Netflix, uh, Pluto, Tubi, yeah. uh, IMDb, you know, someplace where I can 
find a, a good range of films. You know, right. Some of the films are rather modern, but they're good films with good acting, good directing. Um, but I, I, I just don't know. You know, everything changes, everything evolves. Yeah. Uh, and you know, you're exposed to what you're exposed to now as a younger person. You don't expect anymore. Right. Right. Like I was saying, my favorite comedy of all time, Black and you know, it, it beats anything. And the the new films aren't comedy to me; they're something else. They're trying to be. Uh, but Arsenic and Old Lace is one of my favorite movies of all time. I watched, I watched it last week. Yeah, and so I'm right. going to do that as a radio play in uh, first quarter of next year because I'm doing a Christmas Carol starring Vito Bupkis, and I just did War of the Worlds, which is out. Called Woke of the Worlds, but yeah, and I uh, in Woke of the Worlds I play seventeen roles. <laughs> I play seventeen parts in that. Oh, you greedy bastard! Yeah. <laughs> well, I was right. I'm like, oh, I'm like, okay. Some people said they were going to do it, and then they couldn't. I'm like, well, it's right in front of me. I'll just, you know, I can do like two hundred voices, so I just picked a few, you know. So I got to work with like James yeah. James Mason and uh, you know other people, you know. But uh, James, so yeah. yeah, yeah, I do it, James Mason. Oh Jesus! Yeah, well, Jesus is yeah, different. Okay. He's actually from Texas in this one. No, just kidding. Um, I'm, that's a, that's a joke. But uh, yeah, no, it was fun. So I'm doing parodies of these radio plays, and I'm taking the actual script. You know, so I took Orson Welles' script from 1938, and I did a parody of that script. Wow! Yeah, I thought that was you know, it's uh, um, it, it works great. Yeah, it works into my uh, broader scope of like the books that are, of mine that are coming out. It's like part of the story because that uh, has always um, enthralled me, and I think that's when the media started to. You know, the people in power are like, oh, you know, in my view, that could have been something that they hear. Why don't we try this out? See if we can scare the shit out of everybody. You know what I mean? And people are like, even if they didn't know, they're like, oh, my God, did you see the power that this thing had? Totally full of shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, but uh, yeah, it was fun to do. But uh, yeah, so yeah. Ar- Arsenic and Old Lace, I think, is just a brilliant you know, send up. Another one I, I've watched Arsenic Road, I can't even tell you how many times. Another one I have watched so many times I almost know the dialogue for the whole fucking movie <laughs> is, um, uh, 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 wait a second, uh, My Man Godfrey. Which one? My Man Godfrey. Oh, yeah. That is a great film. So brilliant. Absolutely. So brilliant. And the acting, the directing, the sets, everything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was a craft, you know, craftsmanship seems to diminish. And I'm not uh, not to put anything against digital because it actually is probably more, you know, the most wasteful industry ever is filmmaking. It's fucking wasteful as hell. It's just, it's disgusting. You know, and it was probably right. way worse 50, 80 years ago. But, uh, and the digital stuff, you know, saves on all that stuff. I get it. But, you know, holy cow, what a wasteful industry that was. You know, like you would be, you know, 
if you if you never made a film, you'd be surprised on you you'd be like, What? <laughs> oh yeah. The amount of waste yeah. and just, you know unbelievable. We'd sit there we'd build a set and you build the walls on one by three pine and uh luon, which is yeah. uh, laminated mahogany. And so we're eating up mahogany forests mm-hmm. and you build it, paint it, access it, shoot it for a couple of minutes and you throw it in the trash. Yeah. Wow. That used to mean nuts. Yeah, if you're not saving the flats or whatever, if it's just, and then you'll do this whole extravagant thing. Let's say we'll just put for scope um, Raiders of the Lost Ark because Ted mentioned it earlier. So you have that, whatever it is, and then they all that shit goes away and gets destroyed. And then when they do yeah. the next one, they rebuild it. Right. Where in recent, yeah, but in recent years, we've had some filmmakers who go, well, let's make, and it's more for actors' availability, but let's make two in a row or let's do all three at one time. That's what they should, if you're going to do a trilogy, just invest and do it that way so you don't have to, you know, if they're going to be the ones bitching at us to fucking conserve shit, fuck off, why don't you try first? And, you know, we're doing our part, we recycle. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) But I, I think the, the, the biggest change with acting came uh, when CGI came in. Because now you're not, you're not working with much physical stuff. It's all imaginary. Right. So you're, you're doing the job of the character, but then you're also doing the job of the set builder, of the, of the production designer. Yeah, there is a and difference. You know, there's a there's a, a huge difference to that. You know, I'm not trained or anything. I'm just a goofball, jagoff comedian. And you know, when I, you know, I've done stuff on camera and stuff. But when I do like the the radio, the mock radio stuff, you do have to be that. It's almost like being on stage. You have yeah. to oversell it. You know, right? There's a different you know talent to it. You know, but. Uh, Actually um, doing parody. That's like over the top. It's gotta be real, but it's gotta be over the top. Right. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's like um what's the, what was the one line like uh um The alien ship is now sitting on the ground. What we do not know, more importantly, is their political view or sexual gender. And why they attacked her. You know, you gotta you know, there's a whole different weird, you know. It's uh, and then would, and then you find out if you're around green screen if you can really act or not. You know what I mean? Do you think um, theater people have a harder time or an easier time versus movie actors? Oh boy! You know what I mean? Because if you're if you're a theater actor, there's a you know there's a ladder and a black stage, and you're doing a monologue. And you don't have all that shit, so you have to do the same thing as a green screen oh, actor. What, I, what do you mean? There's a ladder. I, well, I'm just say, let's say you're you're at the theater. It's Tuesday, and you're doing this, and you're doing this scene, and you're selling everyone, and you have to recreate the world in your mind and what you're conveying, just like a green screen actor. Do you think 
it's easier for theater people to do green screen than strictly movie actors? I honestly can't answer that. I, I've never done green screen. Yeah. Uh, I've done theater, uh, and theater is different. You know, theater, you've got your set, you've got props, you've got things that you, you know, physical things that are around you. Yeah. You don't have to create. What you have to create is the fact that you belong there, that it's real, it's real to you, it's real. You know, you have purpose. And you do that through the strength of your of your character and your focus on the other actors and the elements involved. So I, I like theater much better, much better. You like theater? You like? Is it because of the response? Oh, the response is part of it, but it's also because it's live. There's no second take. You know, right? You have to have your get together. And there'll be times where you're, you'll go up on a line. You won't remember a line. You go, go to a, a friend of mine used to call it the place where elephants go to die. <laughs> <laughs> Shit in your pants, and, basically. Oh, man. I, it happened to me in a play once in, in Hollywood. And I thought I was there for like a half an hour. And... Uh, finally, one of the other actors said something and triggered my line. And uh, after the play, I said, to, "I apologized to the director." He said, "For what?" I said, "I went where the elephants go to die." Because you did. <laughs> I don't see it. Totally. That's the, the that's the mystery of or magic of theater. You know, it's just so powerful. I was doing a play one time, uh, Wait Until Dark. And that was a movie also. Alan Arkin, uh, gosh, who were all those? Uh, Alan Arkin, just, uh, yeah, he's a Chicago guy. Yeah. And, and so we are doing it one night, and the, the girl that played the blind girl was actually blind. Oh, wow. Which was a unique thing. And one night, the character that I played, um, actually, it was Doug McClure and I split the part. He was so busy doing movies and TV and stuff, they hired me also because they knew that um, Doug was going to be gone a lot. And so Cheryl McManus was the actress's name. Okay. That played the, the, and she was really good. She had the room memorized to a T. But one night, one of the things we did was uh, I'm trying to con her out of and find a doll. And the doll was filled with heroin. She didn't know it. Neither did her husband, who brought it back from Canada. And so I'm thinking it's someplace. And I'm telling the wife that I'm an army buddy of his. And so we get along great. And she goes, well, we've got... And I can't remember how it leads into it, but I've got a, a bunch of photos and things. And she goes in, she gets a suitcase, brings the suitcase out, sits on the couch, and we open up the suitcase, and I look at the photos, and I'm going, oh, yeah, that's he and I, it's such and such, and I'm just bullshitting, right? And one night she brings out the suitcase, and don't you know, the thing explodes open. There's photographs all over the stage. And... 
we have to ad lib at that point because it wasn't planned. <laughs> and I said, go ahead, you know, here, let me sit you down on the couch. I'll pick up all this stuff. And so I go do that. The audience never knew that it wasn't part of the play. Right. right. Another night we had Greg Malavy was playing, wrote the character that, um, what's his name played? Oh, gosh. I just said his name a few minutes ago. Doug McClure? Um, huh? Doug? Not Doug, no. Oh, gosh. Arkin. Oh, Alan Arkin, yeah. Yeah, he, he played this uh, this bad guy. And so uh, Greg Malavy, uh, he was a TV actor. I can't remember the name of his show. But anyway, uh, he was in several series. He plays the bad guy. And he's supposed to, you know, he killed a girl and left there in the apartment. And he's supposed to bring in a carpet. And then we're going to roll her up in the carpet to take her out. Well, he comes in and starts doing his dialogue, but he didn't have the carpet with him. And uh, you could see it, you know, as an actor, what I could see on his face when he realized I didn't have the carpet. He started sweating. Oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah. so I just looked up and I said, hey, Rose, if you look outside, grab outside, there's a fucking, there's a carpet out there. Branch, bring that in. We'll roll her up in that. Audience never knew there was a problem. Right, right. Yeah, it's a nice save. Absolutely. You know, work your feet. Yeah, you know, like a. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Ted. uh, You just have to be on top of everything, and it's all organic. It's all live. Yeah. And if somebody drops the ball, you have to pick it up and hand it to them without making it like you're, you know, saying, look what you did, stupid. No, just pick it up and hand it to them. Yeah, exactly. Oh, absolutely. And that's how uh, magic happens. That's how what? That's how magic happens. Oh, yeah. You know, sometimes, not always, but, I mean, that's where the, you know, that one thing that comes in that wasn't there before, you know. And that's, you know, like uh, the whole digital era. You know, um, Ted used to play bass, correct? Or do you still play bass? Ted, hold on. Jason, yeah, it's those damn Russians. Damn Russians again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, they're but, persistent, uh, right? Right. Yeah, they are. But uh, yeah, they are. Yeah, if you don't mind, I'd like to go back to PTSD for a minute. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Uh, it may sound like, you know, I'm over the PTSD or I'm past it. There's nothing further from the truth. It's not something you get over. It's not something that goes away. You can't take a shot or a pill. Uh but what you can do, what at least for me, this is my perspective, is you learn how to manage it. I still have it. It still affects me. It still gets in my way. But you learn how to manage it. You see certain things starting to come on. You have certain feelings or you start reacting a certain way. 
and that triggers uh, something, you know, in me after so many years of working with it that, okay, this is it. And I'll take a break from whatever it is, or I'll excuse myself from a conversation. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I'll have the attacks and, and I had, this has happened. I had my last two dogs, both of them, I'd be having a, a either a panic attack or a, a, a PTSD moment. And my dogs, both of them, did, I had them at different times. Yeah. I there and I get panic panic attacks that so that were so bad I was afraid that if if I opened my eyes I'd die. If I moved my arm I would die. My dog would come up, she'd be in her bed and she'd come up and lay next to me and then she'd you know, nuzzle up into me and she would sit there until she felt the panic attack or PTSD moment pass. And then she'd go down to my feet and she'd hang out there for a while just to make sure. Wow. And when she felt that I was over it, she'd go down and get in her own bed. That's and amazing. My dogs really helped me a lot. I don't yeah. know. I don't but I don't know if I could have done it without them. Yeah, that, I, I've heard that they say they can sense they can sense all kinds of things with us, you know. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's 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 just important to know. It's like you, you don't look for a cure. There is no damn cure. Right? What there is is learning how to manage it and finding strength in that, comfort in that, and being safe with that. That you don't yeah. have to figure you have to cure it. Right. No cure. Right. Well, Ted, let me ask you this. I mean, do you, do you think it's possible for people that are that are not veterans to to have PTSD? I mean, just like civilians as well. well for I mean, sure. From, you know. Oh yeah. Yeah. PTSD isn't just from war. Right. PTSD yeah. is from trauma. Yeah. Okay. You can be in a car accident and have PTSD. I have a friend of mine, a lady friend of mine lives in North Hollywood. She rolled her Jeep like four times on the, I think it was the 405. PTSD big time. Yeah. Another person back years ago when I was uh, living in Rhode Island and I had a hair salon at the time, uh, one of our customers was one of the few survivors off of a jet plane crash as it was landing or taking off. I can't remember which. And she had PTSD. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you get in a situation when you're looking at how come I'm still here and the other one's not? You know, that's survival. And then it becomes, you know, that, that might walk you into PTSD. Right. So I just, dear listeners, you know, don't look for a cure. There isn't one. You have to accept the responsibility of this thing that's happened to you yeah. and understand that many people like you and there's no dishonor in it. And the fact that you're going to experience fear and anger and all that stuff, it's perfectly normal because if you go through these experiences and it doesn't change you, you weren't normal going in. You were yeah. a psychopath because it didn't change you. Right. Yeah, you know, like, uh, you know, so 
so I almost died. I had COVID, or it was actually co- uh, Corona, in November of 19. So I almost bled to death from uh, the dry cough. It broke a blood vessel in the back of my sinus cavity. Everyone thought it was a bloody nose. Da, 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 da. No one would believe me if I fucking told them because, oh, you're a conspiracy theory. No, I'm not. <laughs> you know, so this happened to me, whatever. And, um, you know, so that was like, I, you know, because basically the doctor had to sit on my chest while my ex-wife held me back from beating his ass because he broke my nose two inches into my face while treating me because he had to shove this fucking oh, thing wow. in. And I have a deviated septum, and he snapped it open. And uh, I don't suggest that for anybody. But I did get medicinal cocaine yeah. in the hospital, and uh, that was part of the cure. Um, yeah. Um, what? So then, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, basically, um, what cured me was uh, like a Benadryl with... Uh, Medicinal liquid cocaine rubbed in my uh, nasal cavity. That's what stopped the bleeding. But it was bleeding so fast that they said I couldn't have a blood transfusion. So my two boys and my ex-wife were there in case I, you know, and I was totally at peace and stuff. So that was one thing. And then my mom got sick later and had something that uh, I sent the rest of the family out because she was reliving a trauma, which fucked me up in a little bit. And... You know, there's levels to PTSD, and no one's less or more. There's just things that happen. And then my brother committed suicide, and then it was, you know. Yeah, and a comment I get a lot is, well, you've been through so much more than I have, but I can't compare my traumas to your traumas. And the first thing I tell him, I said, you know, Relax a minute. That's really bullshit. Right, because your your worst worst, thing is your worst thing. Your worst day is your worst day. Mine is mine. Correct. There's no difference. Yeah, totally. So not feeling guilty or out of sorts because you don't think that whatever you did has the same value of what I did. Right. They're they're the same. same. Yeah, right. And like my whole thing, I couldn't talk to people on the phone when it happened with my brother. So I took the the phone call of my best friend, Paul Vance, and we talked after maybe five minutes. And But the 3, 3 a.m. call was to Ted. Yeah. Didn't, wait a minute. Didn't we talk? Yeah, that was the 3 a.m. call to you. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, much appreciated. You knew, you understood, you know. And then Jay, Jason checked in on me every day. That's- yeah, because a good buddy of mine killed himself. I guess it's been probably four or five years ago now. I've had a few friends, but, you know, that one was the, the closest to me. Yeah. Yeah, and... and- yeah, and Ted, what do you, what's your advice to people who are um, going through things? They know something may be up, or maybe they don't, but they're questioning, or maybe they do know. Um, what's a good bit of advice to get guys to not step up, because that's the wrong word, but to embrace um, getting help? Well... 
First, accept the fact that you have a problem. Don't try to resist the problem. Accept the fact, I've got a problem. Okay, what do I do with this problem? I better get get some help because I don't understand it. I'm not educated in it. Whatever, you know, verbiage you have to use. But just to get help, there's no... There's no shame in getting help. Right. The shame is in not getting help and doing self-harm or harming another. That's where the shame is. And like I said earlier, you go through these experiences. Before you went in, you're an innocent babe, so to speak. You go out after the experience, you're changed. And if you don't change because of the experience, you were a lunatic going in. Well, you know, I I mean, you know, a a lot of guys from, say, our generation back, too. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I can speak from experience. I mean, you know, you're raised that, you know, you don't bitch, you don't moan, you don't, you know, you don't be a pussy. I mean, you know, you you just uh, suck it up and and, and get on with it, you know? And and, I mean, that works for a a number of years, but sooner or later, you're going to pay the fiddler, you know? The day's going to come, so. I want to tell you something here, too. Uh, And this came from uh, the psychiatrist I was seeing, the, the emergency room psychiatrist. Thank God she was a wonderful woman. One day I'm waiting for my appointment. I got in there a bit too early, and I'm sitting there in the, the lobby. And she comes out, and she gets this elderly Japanese man. I think, wow, that's unusual. So when I go in on my turn, I said, I, I, I'm not trying to dig into somebody else's case or anything like that, but that, that gentleman that you just saw, why was he here? And she goes, he's got PTSD, he lived with it for many years, and then it it finally overtook him. And the thing is, the more you resist, or the longer you resist, the nastier it's going to be, yep. the harder it's going to be. Yeah. So rather than being a tough guy, John Wayne was John Wayne. You're not fucking John Wayne. He played mythical characters in movies. They didn't exist, so he could be anything he wanted. You are living in a real world. You have to be what's real. Right. You have to be real to you. And first off, there's no shame. Like I said, there's no shame in it. There's the only shame is not getting help. And you know, just take care of yourself. Love yourself. Yeah. As hard as it is. Right. Yeah. I- reach out. There are there are emergency numbers all over the place for veterans. And, you know, hell, you could call it, even if you're not a veteran, you could probably call those same helplines and, and get directed to somebody that can help you. Absolutely. But you'll find out you're not, not alone. Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. And I think that's one of the biggest things when you're going through an episode. And I, can, I can't even count the episodes I've had where I'm laying in the dark. And I'm feeling... Totally alone. But you're really not. Yeah. Right. And just so everyone knows, the Veterans Crisis Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. Press 1. Um, yeah. Reach out if you can. You know, the hotlines are great because you can be anonymous. And, uh, um, you know, 
it's multi-layered and uh um part of this podcast is to you know make sure that guys can talk openly and all that stuff and man if it wasn't for you two guys i'm telling you yeah thank you very much yeah a pleasure yeah but uh yeah it's nice to know you know like you know when i dialed ted's number at three in the morning i knew he was gonna pick up yep you know what I mean? and uh you know, a lot of people may think it's not uh, appropriate to call your buddy at three in the morning, but if you have to, fucking dial. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, uh, you know, your buddy may not know what to do or, you know, but he can at least maybe talk you down or get you a point to, to a hotline or something, you know. Or just but, listen, you know, just listen sometimes is is, yeah. is good. Absolutely, you know. But yeah. uh, I had a good friend of mine worked with him in, in building sets and stuff and we'd ride our motorcycles together um he was a musician so i'd go to his gigs and one time he called me i hadn't seen him in a while and he called me and said said he said a long time ago you told me something i said what's that he said you've i've forgotten how i actually put it um that I value friendship. The way I rate friendship is not the good times. I rate the friendship by when you call me at three in the morning and ask for my help. That's when you really need it. When you're really feeling desperate. Right. That to me is a privilege. That's the privilege of friendship. And it's a just. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, in making those phone calls, when you make the phone call to that person, you know you can be completely honest because they understand that that's why you called them. You know yeah. what I mean? I knew Ted had a immediate understanding from my brother's point of view and mine. You know what I mean? Yep. A unique um, moment, basically. Well, you know, I mean, you know, there's probably more more of us that <laughs> that deal with stuff than don't, you know. But everybody thinks that they're, you know, uh, their buddy's going to think they're weird or, you know, weak, whatever. Um, yeah. People would probably be surprised to know that a lot of guys, you know, a lot of guys are going through their own shit, you know, basically. Oh, for sure. And that's okay. Yeah. Everyone does. Yeah. You know. You know. You know, what do you think about that, Ted? Is he there? Ted. All right, hold on. Maybe if you paid your phone bill once. <laughs> Goddamn Russians. Yeah, anyway, so we're, we were saying that, you know, how how important it is for guys to be able to talk, even if, uh, you know, your buddy yeah. may think you're weird. You know, what are your views on that, you know? Well, the, the thing, I, what I was saying before, the, the interruption was, um, to me, it's a badge of honor. If you call me first, that's showing me the value of our friendship. Not when it's good times and you bring over an extra bottle of wine or whatever the hell that is. 
It's when you call me in the middle of the night. Sure. That's what I know what our friendship is. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, there there was a thing like when, you know, in my generation, yours, Ted, there was there's a missing item right now. Okay. And for people who don't live by it, they don't have any fucking clue. It's called respect. You know, respect, you know, I had a board on the, you know, when the, when the boys would do something wrong, there was a board on the, uh, on the wall, go to the board. What does it say? You know, it'd say truth, loyalty, respect. Okay. Say it again. Truth, loyalty, respect. One more time. Truth, loyalty, respect. Why do we say that? Well, without truth, you get no respect. Without respect, you have no loyalty. And people don't understand that. I, mean, I grew up around biker culture and veteran culture and rock and roll. Rock and roll, and that was my whole thing. So I totally understood the vibe, and I hung out in that in that life space, whatever, whatever it is. And there seems to be today, I could be wrong, maybe I'm just an old fuck now, and I'm like, get off my lawn! But uh, <laughs> there seems to be the missing thing is respect. Right. Yeah. You know, well, what happened? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the hell happened. You know, people would go to me, hey, oh, my God, your son held the door open for me. I, I just want to mention something about your... I'm like, well, I teach... I taught him manners. Is your kid a jag-off? Yeah, is your kid a jag-off? What the... You know, you know what, what? why wouldn't your kid oh, do <laughs> I, think, I think right now where we've grown to as a country and as a, a society is uh, I know we've lost the ability to love and respect ourselves so we can't do it we can't respect others or love others um, we've been sold a bill of goods by oh and I don't want to get into politics or that right, stuff, but you know, I'm always I'm the opinion of always question, because there's nothing wrong with questioning. You know, um, always question. Yeah, you know. Oh yeah. Always question. There's nothing wrong with it. And when they tell you that that's wrong, something's wrong with it. Then there's a problem. So I think yeah, we're yeah. in a really weird space right now. What do you think about yeah, that, Ted? Yeah, we've we've just capitalism has gotten so far out of hand and so ridiculous. The you know the imbalance of wealth. The uh, you, know, you take a look at the increase in salaries in in Congress, the Senate, and in corporate America, and then the average guy that's working for a living. Yeah. Back, back when I was a kid, probably when you were a kid too. I'm growing up in Ohio, and all of our families, most of them, the father went to work. Mom stayed home. Yeah. And when you came home from school, mom was there. You either got a snack or you went up, did your homework, or you reported in, then you went out to play. Yeah. And we still had enough. Dad made enough living wage-wise that there was money put away for school, for right. college. There was money put away for vacations. Right. There was money put away for holidays. There was money put away for emergencies. Yeah. All on one paycheck. You can't do that with two paychecks in a household now. Right. right. Pay the more. 
Right, like my uh, co-host Jason Knuckle Dragger, fucking Neanderthal. <laughs> you know, in order for the mail to get delivered, you know, you fucking caveman. Um, right. He works six days a week. You know, he's driving truck, getting you know, making sure that you you know, Jason, tell everyone what you do, and you're out there doing it. You know. Yeah, load load my first load at three a.m. Uh, taking it to the post offices. Uh, me and all my coworkers, you know, we're getting it to the post offices so they could do their thing. And uh, I basically uh, I work uh, three a.m. to about six thirty p.m. Uh, with a you know a couple hour break midday in between routes. But it just you know it's just uh, hustle, hustle, hustle. You know. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, like, you know. All of my uncles were tradesmen, and my dad, you know, was either a tradesman or drove truck or whatever. And uh, I'm sorry, I guess all the payments are coming out of my phone right now because it uh, has reached to the uh, 27th of November. Sorry about that. But, uh, yeah, you know, people were able to do it, and, you know, I don't know. Enough with the taxes. There's too many... Man, it's it's unreal. It's not unreal. party specific, specific. Not party specific, but there's too much taxes going on. Manage what's going on. Let's get rid of the because we know programs have doubled and tripled, not in scope or uh, financial outlay, but in they're doing the same thing. Let's get an audit here. We just went through, or we're just finishing going through a really hard time. Let's audit things and figure. You know, if, if three different programs are doing the same thing, let's combine them, get rid of the excess. You know, that shouldn't, yeah. you know, that shouldn't be a bad idea. You know what I mean? Right. Well, you know, I mean, it's sad that nowadays you can work 60, 60, 80 hours a week and you're still waiting on next week's paycheck. I mean, you know, you would think when, when you put out that much that you, you'd be, you know, be able to have a little uh, breathing room, but I mean, it's just not the case anymore, you know? Right. It's like, right. No, it's just it's just it's it's insanity in the healthcare costs. Oh and yeah, it's, you know, it's just on and on and on, and there's no reason for it. It's you know you, you go to Canada, and let's say that you're you're on uh, one of the the statins, right? And you go to Canada, you buy it for five bucks for a month. You come here and it's fifty or a hundred and fifty. Yeah, and it, it's insane. And yep. because the regulations, because of the lobbyists, correct. They, you know, they don't want you to pay that. They want you to pay more. Yeah. And it just it, what they don't, I think they've lost sight of, is that they keep on going. What they're going to do is price themselves off the planet. Yeah. Because yeah. there's nobody able to afford their services or goods. Well, like insulin. Yeah, that's a perfect example yeah. of what's going on. You know why? Why yeah, is it a hundred times more here than it is in Canada? What? Hello? Yeah. Who's getting paid off? You know right. the people. The people bitching or the people not bitching? You know what I mean? Okay. Mm-hmm. We know that the pharmaceuticals outlay a bunch of money to both sides. Don't give me that bullshit. <laughs> right. And don't politicize healthcare. You know there needs to. Be, you know there's a weird a weirdness going on and I don't have any public opinion about it, it but you you shouldn't politicize health at all but what do I 
I'm an idiot. I could be wrong. You know what I mean? But um, it's uh, very, very odd. That's all I can say. Well, growing up as a kid, the hospitals were not in it to, for profit. The hospitals were there to provide a service. Right. And the administrators, they made a normal wage. Right. Now the hospital is for, as a business to make a profit. And like when I had the accident with my foot, the medical bills were, I think, like $779,000. Wow. A month at Sinai and five surgeries and all the rest of the stuff. Yeah. You know how much my lawyer got that down to? You won't believe this. Five bucks? 38. 38 from wow. 770. Wow. That just proves right there the, the, the amount of padding that's going on. Well, yeah, well, here's another thing. You can call literally call 10 places and ask how much a knee surgery will cost, and it's this specific knee surgery with this specific repair, and they can't answer you. That's crazy. Because they don't, they don't know how many tissue boxes you're going to use at $25 a tissue box. Right. So, we, you know, I mean, I, I don't have insurance. But when I, you know, I'm diabetic. And when I go for my, you know, every couple months for my, you know, get some blood work, I'm paying it all out of my pocket. But when you tell them that you're self-pay, you know, you get like a 30% discount right off the top. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like... um Okay, so I was going to this major place in Chicago. That's a rehab institute, but I can't say them specifically, but it's a rehab institute in Chicago, backwards. Um, and uh, we were giving, um, we used to do, because I was the uh, board member of Spinal Cord Injury Association, so we'd, we would do um, continuing education on spinal cord injuries and assistive technologies that you could use. And that's when I would come in. And so we have this chair, and it's a stand-up chair. So if you can exert four pounds of pressure from your upper extremities, you could stand up on your own power with, like, five pumps on this wheelchair. And the, the head guy comes over to me and goes, why would you want to stand? I said, what the fuck did you just say? <laughs> I'm right. like, dude, did you not know the ten fucking benefits of standing, this, that, and the other, da, da, da? And so he's like, okay, well, we're interested in all your products, this, that, and the other, da, 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 da. He goes, um, we want to, you know, carry your wheelchair, but uh, every time we run a script, uh, we want a $3,800 kickback. Wow. In, he says it in front of the whole fucking place, right? Damn. And this is like the product line was, was waiting 20 years to get in this place, and I did it with, like, a couple of phone calls, got in, and they're like, what? And I'd go to the head guy, I'm like, dude, fuck you in front of the whole right. fucking place. Are you kidding me? 3,800. Yeah. So that's how I learned that uh, the healthcare system yeah. wasn't uh, what it's supposed to be, yeah. you know? What say you, Ted? You've had your share yeah. of uh, medical in incidents, for sure. Yeah, that's you. Right on. Okay, I, so go ahead. What? 
Well, you want my medical history? Is that what you asked me? Well, no. I said, what's your what's your um, opinion of um, let's say public medicine versus uh, VA? Because when you get hurt, you have to go to the closest place. I've got issues with the VA. Number one, it's not the individual hospital or units. It's the system. Right. It's underfunded for the number of veterans we have with the serious injuries or things that come upon you from age uh, or because you age differently because of your combat and so on. Right. Uh, now, where I am here... Uh, I go to a private sector uh, ophthalmologist. I go to a private sector audiologist. And they treat me just as though I was paying top dollar. Right. And they're actually quite better than the, the service that I got inside the VA. Now, in Los Angeles, I had that fantastic primary care doctor, and she made sure. She, was, she had a lot of clout in the system. In the whole system, not just the hospital. Yeah. And uh, I got excellent care from her and whoever she assigned me to for whatever clinic. Yeah. So I have no complaints in Los Angeles. Now, here, uh, the main facility is Hampton Roads. It's about, about an hour away or so. And there's a couple local clinic type places. But this one at Hampton, you go up there for a prescription. Okay, you check in. And I used to have to go for blood work every couple of weeks because I have blood thinners. And <clears throat> I'd go in and I'd get my blood tests. Okay, you, you, you sign in, you get in a line, and then you sit for an hour and wait for your turn to get blood drawn. Then you go over to the pharmacy. Your reports of the pharmacist, they say, okay, they prescribe the medication. Yes, I've taken it for like the last 20 years. And then you go, okay. And then you go sit down and wait for them to process your prescription. And an hour or so goes by. Then Uh-oh. Oh, you there, Vince? Yeah, hold on. I was taking a pee, of course. Okay. Hi, Ev. Uh, does your car need a new warranty? Hey, Ted. Okay, sorry about that. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, you go up, like I was saying, you go up for blood work, you get in line, then you wait for your turn to go in and get blood taken. Then you go over to the pharmacy, you talk to the pharmacist, you have to wait in line, you have to take a number to get into him. So that's like a half an hour to an hour. Then they say, okay, and they describe the medication you've been doing for 10 years. And uh, you go get in another line, and you see your name come up. There's not another line, you go sit in the lobby, you see your name come up on the board, then you get into a line again to get your prescription. You'll spend between driving and going through all the lines and waiting. I spend a whole fucking day to have a little two, a couple of tubes of blood drawn and to pick up a prescription. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. 
Yeah. Know, it's just so understaffed. Yeah, it, it, it's it's not the individual institute; it's the entire program. Yeah, like it's I can I can give you an example from a uh, provider aspect. So we get this phone call. Right? Hey, da da da. Um, we got this guy. Um, you need to go over there right now um, to measure his place. We don't want him staying in the new spinal ward injury. Uh, in the spinal ward uh, center in Chicago. And uh, so we need you to come out here immediately. Da, da, da. The guy had money. So I go over to immediately and um, basically, Ted, what I did, the main line that I carried was a, uh, if you're in a wheelchair, I could pick you up by your armpits like a baby. Um, and that's right. not a diminutive. And I could track you through your house, put you on the toilet, put you in the tub, put you in your bed. Etc. Also get you in and out of a pool or onto a horse, you know, that kind of shit. And uh, right. so I go over there and do that because what people don't understand, if you have a skin ulcer or, okay, if you are a, a para or a quad, one of the most dangerous things to get is a skin ulcer. And it costs $300,000 right. a month to treat. $300,000. Per month to treat a skin ulcer. Right. Why? I don't know. Because that's what they price it out as. You know, that's what we know as a provider. We know that, you know, it's X amount per day, da-da-da-da-da. So what you have to do, and we also had these, uh, we also sold mattresses that roll you so you don't get the skin ulcer. So all this was a package. If we get people out quick, we can provide a faster healing situation all around because once you're independent, you're feeling great, you know, mental positivity, 80% of the game, you're in it and you start working on the benefit of yourself. And so we go out and do this, boom, you know, and then nothing for 90 days. They said I had to get over there that day. And I did because I'm in it to help people. And they're like, it's an emergency. You need to go there, right? Da, 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 da. 90 days. Because an administrator overlooked the paperwork, and it cost $900,000 to treat that guy when he could have been home. I mean, that's just one case. You know what I mean? So it's... People don't understand when they talk about it. Oh, blah, blah, blah. Well, no. Here's just this one guy hanging out in his room in the spinal center because it was an emergency, and then they didn't think it was an emergency after he gave him the price. Just weird. And we didn't overcharge. We, were, we weren't looking to get rich. We were there to help people, but we wanted to make a living. But uh, just very bizarre, you know. And, uh, yeah, I, I know. Under her thousand, I could take like three clients and retire. Yeah, it's it. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. So if you multiply that, just imagine. And that's when um, Heinz VA in Chicago, which is the place I'm talking about, uh, was under investigation, and they were sending back. I think it was like six hundred thousand guys from. Uh, Germany and 
they couldn't they had to disperse him to everywhere else other than the VA basically in Chicago so Schwab you know Chicago Rehab Institute all these other people were getting the people coming back you know cuz the VA has had some problems and i just don't understand yeah. if we're sending people into war the number one cost is the is the actual cost of war not the not the stuff that you pay companies it's the human cost so you know how does that figure into the whole ptsd situation for veterans ted lot of veterans who committed suicide because they can't get the help. 22 per day. Yeah. That's multiple reasons, but I'm just specifically speaking of they can't get the medical help. I don't mean psychological necessarily. I'm talking medical help. It's going to be X number of days or they're in pain or whatever. And giving another example, okay, I've had some issues. I'm right next to a naval hospital. It's one of the finest in the country. So if I have an issue, I go to the emergency room over there. Well, used to be a couple of years ago, you go over there, you're a vet. I'm 100%. So I have the right to go into any local hospital, the closest hospital I want. Okay. And get treated. And you tell them when you go in, you're a vet, blah, blah, blah. And then once they stabilize you, they would notify the VA, tell you, tell them the condition and everything, and then they would decide, the VA would decide, should they keep you or should they send an ambulance to pick you up? It was their prerogative. That was great because it was 50 miles away. They're not going to send a fucking ambulance. Because I didn't want to go up there anyway. Right. Then they changed it and didn't tell the veterans that they changed it. And so now it's gone through a couple of changes through the the Trump administration that were not good for the veterans. And I'm not saying because it was Trump, it's just this is the reality of it. it was Trump. Sure. Right. And now I go to the emergency room. I have to call a certain number and then they approve my visit. If not, I get billed. I am being billed right now for like 20 something, 30 something thousand dollars. And I go to a military hospital and I'm 100% disabled. So you show me the, the logic in that. All right. Don't bring logic into this. We're not into logic. We're America. I'm sorry. I said don't bring don't bring logic into this. This is America. We don't believe in logic. I heard I heard that. Right? Yeah. You know, yeah. like um so I got billed for like thirty five grand for my hospital stay with the corona nineteen at the time. And so I'm like, look, you sent all my shit to CDC. This is that blah, blah, blah. You know, all the cases that come out later have proved to be the same thing I went through, this, that, and the other. And I'm like, dude, you get three times the amount you'll get from me. 
And yeah, six hundred bucks is what I paid. But uh <laughs> you know, I'm like, hey, I didn't you know, but still, I mean it you know, you're in the hospital for a few days, man. That can you know, it's unfortunate that it can ruin you and it shouldn't. Yeah. You, you know, and uh the you know, each side looks at the other and grabs their pearls and you know both of them screwed you. You know, so I don't understand, you know, um, I don't know. I just think there there's room for other things to happen because the, the two that are there have failed. Right. Where's our anti-war? No. Where's our anti-war? Where's our, you know, health care for everybody? Where Where is that? Um, but, yeah. you know, what do I know? I'm just a jag-off from fucking Chicago. The, the big- the, the big problem with that is when they're budgeting a war, they don't budget the veterans that they're going to have to treat afterwards. Right. That should be line item number one. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's the immediate cost to a war. Exactly. It's inevitable. It's going to be like planes will get shot down. You'll have to replace them. Okay. Veterans are going to get fucked up. You have to fix them. Yeah. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, and I don't understand the repeated failure, no matter who's in office, to make sure that, you know, these men and women are properly taken care of. Right. And uh, I don't know how to fix it, you know. But uh, the question should be out there on how do we do better. Yeah. And then during the last administration, too, they were talking about privatizing the VA, like they're going you know, to privatize the Postal Service. Yeah, no, no, no. That's no. the biggest... Now, the right. VA, no, I agree. When they can't... They can't handle, a, a, like, need for audiology or ophthalmology, like, so they send me out to a private firm. They negotiate lower prices, and the debt gets taken care of. Yeah. And that's all well and good. That's the way. Instead of privatization, they should stop trying to overbook the VA and start booking more out in the public sector, but keeping the VA intact. Because the VA, with their experiences and everything, they understand soldiers a lot better than anybody else. Sure. Absolutely. Incidental, you know, like eye care, health, uh, audiology, all that stuff, you can send them out. So, right. Uh, Oh, absolutely. You know, and uh, like, for instance, there's this Ted, you there? There is this um, there's this one case. And uh, basically this. okay, so this guy came back from Afghanistan uh, roadside IUD um, blew off both his legs. his right extremity and his left was in danger of being lost. And if he wasn't moved from the VA to um, the other health facility in Chicago, he would basically die. So there was a time limit. And uh, because it was just getting, you know, when you have a multiple situational 
medical health emergency. I don't know how to explain it better because I've had a couple of glasses of wine. So you you have all this stuff going on, and it's very important to have the you know the best care at the time in the moment and politics in the hospital throughout the hospital, state versus federal. It shouldn't matter. Okay, so a lot of times that gets in the way of actual someone getting treated correctly. So we had two people working for the Daily Herald, um, reporters going after this guy. Gary Sinise was working to try to get this guy moved. I'm working on trying to get this guy moved. All this stuff was going on. And um, I'm like, oh, my God, this guy's got like fucking 12 hours left. Or if he stays there, because the doctor was like, oh, we well, we have the, you know, the, the same, you know, the same level of care that we do if you send them over to XYZ. I don't want to name them the medical facility. So, right. and everyone's like, well, no, that's total fucking bullshit. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, no. So, anyway, so all this is going on. No one can get him moved. The doctor is standing firm like he's God. And um, so I'm like, who do we call? You know, like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And time's running out, time's running out. I'm like, I remember, like, uh, a David Letterman show. And this guy who was on said he always kept his number listed publicly. So I dial 411. I'm like, Bob Dole, Washington, D.C. Right? Okay. Bink. I call him. I'm like, I hear, hello. I'm like, get the fuck out of here. I'm like, Senator Dole, he goes, yeah, what can I do you for? I'm like, no fucking way, right? I'm like, no way. So I'm like, hey, man, this, that, and the other, blah, 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 and this is right when the World War II thing was going up, and he's like, well, I don't have any more time to deal with any more cases. I'm like, sir, if you don't address this within the next three hours and the transfer time, blah, 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 he could possibly die. He's like, okay, here's the number. Send all the shit to my assistant. So I did, and he got moved, and basically... So now he's one of the um, people you see with the Gary Sinise Foundation um, and all their PR stuff. So uh, they're doing some great stuff, and they're also funding um, programs that work with uh, PTSD uh, for veterans. So that should, uh, you know, Gary Sinise is a good dude. He does a lot of stuff. Ted, you there? Oh, all right. Let's see. Let me get one more call with Ted. And Hello? Hello? You there? Hi, is your refrigerator running? No, I, I'm, I'm trying to get a hold of somebody for an uh, extended warranty on my car. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. All right. Well, uh, I think we're going to wrap it up for the evening. Ted, love you, brother. Thank you okay. for coming on. I appreciate it. Uh, we'll have you on once you can uh, um, uh, promote 
uh, the stuff that you're doing because I think it's very important that people get that outlet. And, uh, you know, any last words, Ted, for people uh, dealing with PTSD, whether they think they have it or not? Make the call. There's somebody that wants to help. And don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. It's normal. For what you've been through, it's normal. It would not be normal if you weren't going through it. So do that. And there is, like I was saying before, it's not a cure. But you will. You can learn to manage it so that it doesn't take your life away from you. Make the call. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like uh, one of the things that I had to do is, uh, you know, I'm a smart ass online. I, I dropped my 10 things. I didn't feel funny for a long time. So I don't, when I went on, I saw all this negativity and I just couldn't deal with it. And uh, it was weird that that should be a thing. It's like everyone seemed so hateful in a time where you think that people would come more together, but maybe that is my own mental thing that i was going through i have no idea but um yeah ted thank you very much brother i appreciate it absolutely love you man jason love you brother love you too man and uh you know when uh things are getting hard and you uh want to talk about it and you don't think you can you can always do it through humor and uh sit down with your friend have a drink give him shit give him a hug Tell them you love them. There's nothing wrong with it. And at the end of the day, when you cut one loose and it was silent and you can blame it on your best friend, hey, (laughs) that's just creativity talking. Until next time, guys, thank you very much. All right. Thanks, guys. Take care, brother. Take care, man. Take care.
Thank you.